You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. Airline Pilot Guy episode 398. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on Halloween 2019. In today's episode, a hero doctor comes to the aid of a sick passenger on a Bamboo Airways flight. And we'll tell you why dogs wearing tutus delayed a Norwegian air flight. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, the MiG-007. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 398 is ready for pushback. Hello, welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's a it's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and cover your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a former U.S. Air Force pilot and uh, currently captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in Atlanta, and I like to call it Acme Airlines. And joining me today to help with the news and feedback is from her lakeside home, in the Carolinas. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so great to be here. And it might be Halloween today, but I'll tell you what, it is the best time of year as far as IPA consumers are concerned because Celebration Ale is here. So, Yay! Well, we should play Celebrate, right? <laughs> We should. At least people that like that style of beer, like me. All right. Well, nice to see you, Steph. And joining us from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, and former captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, on this uh, amazing Halloween-y night. I don't know if that's the correct uh, term, yeah, but right. the doorbell's ringing and uh, the pumpkin candle is lit and we're getting people coming around getting uh, jelly eyeballs, aren't they? Lucky. Jelly eyeballs? Jelly oh eyeballs? my gosh, jelly. what have you done jelly. to her? Oh, jelly. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I heard too. Jelly <laughs> eyeballs. <laughs> I'm concerned for your dear wife there for a moment. Yeah, scared. I would be too. Scared us a little bit. Did you oh. say something uh, about... Um... Bond. James Bond. Uh, I I didn't. No, no, I, I, Roger did. did. Roger said something about yes, Bond, he did. James Bond. Mig 007. Oh, okay. I, I misunderstood. This well, uh, tonight's plane tale, a story of spies. Ooh, look forward for, to hear that. Okay, uh, excellent. So, how's everybody doing? Good. Good. All right. Mm-hmm. Are you are you feeling good enough for us to? Uh, oh, by the way, uh, Radio Roger at the beginning of our show there. He is a uh, Emmy Award winning TV and radio reporter, and he works at uh, the biggest news talk station in 
the New York market, and that's uh, 1010 Wins. And uh, we thank him for doing that for us every show. Absolutely. Element of professionalism. It's the only professionalism we have actually in the show. But we do appreciate it. Appreciate it, I guess. I've got a question, Jeff. Yes, sir. Now, the podcasters won't be able to tell this, but Mm -hmm. you're flying backwards. Yes, So how do you do that? Well, it's a special skill that I have. Okay. And um, it's uh, just a very strong, a, a very slow airplane and a very strong headwind. <laughs> headwind or, well. I'm trying to work out how the clouds headwind, are the moving clouds against be, the headwind. Yeah. Okay, well, let's not get off technical there. <laughs> I don't know how it's happening. I think it's just a very slow airplane. <laughs> I think you just need to turn around and face uh, the yeah. clouds. Well, I did try that. I think you were off camera doing something, getting, getting a gin and tonic or something, but... Uh, it just, uh, it was hard to hear me. And then I couldn't see anything that was going on either. So it just wasn't going to work out <laughs> kind at of all. A mess. Yeah, it was a mess. And for those on the podcast, Jeff is uh, working today in front of a fabulous view of streaming clouds, except they're coming towards him, not going away. Uh, well, actually, they're coming towards his backside. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> and ooh, wow. Mm, yeah, <laughs> that feels good. Oh, that one over there. Ooh. Big fluffy one. <laughs> wow. Okay. Love those cumulonimbus. Um, Got it. Yeah, yeah. It's the lightning you need to watch out for. Yeah, I still haven't worked out how to get uh, the pictures that I used to have behind me uh, to display on my big screen. <laughs> my app is just not, I keep getting this this uh, message that says something's broken and it can't display my photo. So, And I honestly haven't been really working hard to fix that and didn't really think about it until now like a couple minutes ago so oh well i'll work on that for the next show anyway um let's see i think we're going to go ahead and jump right on into the news as we've been doing the last several shows and so you guys ready for that you bet sure thing here we go stand by for news All right, we'll start with uh, the first item in our news folder. Yesterday, a Bamboo Airways flight from Hanoi to Baran Ma... I don't know. T-H-U-O... There's no R in that first word either. Oh, oh, yeah, now that I'm focusing my eyes, I can tell that as well. Buan Ma... Sure. Yeah. Uh, Bravo Mike Victor. Look it up yourself. Experienced a medical emergency in the skies above Vietnam. Thankfully, a doctor traveling on the flight stepped up to help resulting in a happy ending all around. And there's some nice pictures of the, the fine doctor wearing a, uh, a football jersey, I believe. Um, can you recognize what that is, um, uh, Nick? Is that a one that is... Uh... Yeah, it's a chessboard. Okay. <laughs> I don't Bar- know. Barcelona. I, I'm, are you asking the wrong person? I'm okay. not a, a soccer fan. It's a Barcelona ah. jersey. Barcelona. Ah, Barcelona. Barcelona. Okay. Um, so anyway, uh, Bamboo Airways this morning shared the story of a doctor on board who came to the aid of a passenger experiencing seizures. The airline referred to the gentleman as, quote, the angel who wore the Barcelona shirt on the flight uh, 1401. After explaining the story, the airline went on to thank the off-duty doctor for his selfless actions. 
Uh, Flight 1401, operated by Bamboo Airways, is the outbound portion of a daily rotation between Hanoi and uh, that word that I can't pronounce, that that city that I cannot pronounce. Uh, The flight is scheduled to depart from Hanoi at 1445. Following a one-hour and 45-minute flight, the aircraft is due to arrive in that city. Yesterday, the aircraft departed from Hanoi about 10 minutes late, uh, according to Flight Radar 24, a wonderful website. Uh, Around an hour into the flight, a female passenger began to experience seizures towards the middle of the Airbus A320. Flight attendants rushed to help the lady when a doctor who happened to be traveling on the flight made himself known. Don't doctors always make themselves known? Like you go to a party. They're like pilots in that regard. Yeah, like pilots. (laughs) (laughs) True. It's like silence. Silence. No, no one's really talking. With you, Steph? No, it's a, it's I'm a, a pilot. Yeah. I'm a doctor. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Brain surgeon, too, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Even yeah. worse. Anyway. No, she's not really like that, guys. No, not at all. Um, so, let's see. Uh, Bamboo Airways cabin crew assisted by providing the gentleman with the aircraft's emergency kit. The airline says that the afflicted passenger showed signs of appro- improvement when supplemental oxygen was provided. As the aircraft was near the top of uh, its descent, when the incident unfolded, it continued with its journey to Buan Ma Thuat. The uh, aircraft's pilots communicated with those on the ground and arranged for an ambulance to meet the aircraft upon arrival at its destination. At this point, the doctor could have handed the patient over to the paramedics and continued on with his journey. However, the doctor abandoned his journey, putting the patient first. He didn't even stop to collect his luggage. Only when the passenger arrived at the hospital around 20 minutes later and her condition had improved, the doctor handed over responsibility for the passenger. Following the patient's handover at the local hospital, the doctor, still wearing the Barcelona football shirt, returned to Buan Ma Thuat Airport. Uh, here he was met by Bamboo Airways representatives who reuni- reunited the gentleman with the luggage he left on board the aircraft. Following the incident, the airline issued a public statement on Facebook stating, Bamboo Airways would like to express our sincere gratitude and appreciation to you, the angel who wore Barcelona shirt on flight 1401 on 23-10-2019. We are pleased to welcome you on board and serve you again. That's a nice story. Hopefully for free. Yeah. Uh, that is a nice story. Very heartwarming story. First time I saw it, I looked at the aircraft they got at the, the beginning, and I thought, oh, I've never heard of one of those before. What's a BAM 800? <laughs> yeah, the uh, bam 800 the font is yeah, a little right. odd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it does look like bam 800. Yeah, bamboo. All yes. right, well, as I've now worked out, he um hoped he didn't bamboozle them. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. there we go. Okay, moving uh, on. You need one of those uh, that has just nothing but groans on it. Yeah, I should. Yeah. I need a groan. I'll have to write that down. Um, so, <laughs> Steph, anything to add or subtract from that story? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, there's not a whole lot of information in here. No. So, presumably, it sounds like the passenger who was having the seizures improved and they got her to the hospital and all is well. And um, kudos to the doctor on board, the hero in or Angel, sorry, in the Barcelona shirt, who stepped up to to help. Yes, kudos to him. Kudos. Oh, kudos. Kudos. <laughs> Are they sure he's a doctor and not a footballer? Uh, it's hard to tell. I mean, yeah, okay. you know. Yeah, but, apparently there are, some of his methods were a little unorthodox, and maybe he wasn't yeah, really he, a doctor. He just, <laughs> he just wanted to use a wet sponge on the patient all the time. <laughs> hmm. 
I'm going to leave that one alone. Yeah, that's that, usually yeah. what you get if you're a footballer and they and they you you know you fall over and hurt yourself. They just come on with a wet sponge. Oh, if you quit uh, rub down and uh, yeah, that's you're, you're good your to way. go again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're good to go. I wasn't going that way at all. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I mean we we've talked about in-flight uh, medical emergencies and stuff before, but this one sounds like it was relatively straightforward and a, a good outcome. So, yes, it so. was good all around. Well, here's another fun one, uh, item B. Uh, French bulldogs wearing tutus have delayed a flight from Gatwick Airport. <laughs> a number, a was num- this a slow news week? Yeah, I think just, it was. Okay. But you know what? No, I mean, we that's have, a good thing. In no, aviation, no, right? we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit later. You know, when we do our catching up thing, uh, Liz and I got met and had a business meeting yesterday uh-huh. in Toronto, and uh, there were a whole bunch of things in the news. And I said, you know, let's just like. Thin it out to like only three items and then we can get the news knocked out and try to, you know, really do a good job of covering as much feedback as possible. And, and I said, you know, I'm going to keep it light. So uh, we decided, uh, both of us, that uh, we'll throw a couple lighthearted and actually all three of them are sort of lighthearted. So um, for a change, instead of all the down, I mean, there were plenty of crashes between last episode and this episode and uh, a lot of hearings and everything else, a lot of negative stuff. And ah, mm-hmm. I'm not in the mood for that. So that's what we decided. And so here we go. So uh, a number of emotional support dogs were traveling in passengers hand luggage on a Norwegian air flight destined for Austin, Texas. The Boeing 787 had been due to depart at 11 BST. Uh, was it British, British summertime? Yep. I think, uh, but was delayed by an hour and a half. A spokesman for Nor- Norwegian Air said the captain decided to uh, offload the distressed dogs and their owners. Wait a minute. The dogs were distressed. I thought they were sp- there to keep the passengers from being distressed. Well, without their, without their distressed dogs, the owners might be doubly distressed. Oh, very dis- distressed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Norwegian Air said emotional support dogs for people with mental or emotional disability are allowed on direct flights to and from the U.S., Excluding flights to the UK. Hmm. So, so you can you can flights. leave with your dogs from the UK to the US. You just can't yeah. bring them back. I'm not sure I understand the rule. That might be something to do with uh, the CAA's uh, much tighter regulations on traveling with uh, animals in the cabin. Ah, okay. I like it. Um, sorry for you out there who really like your emotional support animals with you in the cabin, but... I just assume not have them there. But anyway, um, let's see. Where was I on this? Um, okay, here we go. Pictures on social media showed the dogs being carried in hold alls and wearing tutus. <laughs> not sure. <laughs> not sure why they were wearing tutus. <laughs> it really doesn't explain I, I'm it. But... Much, I'm much less distressed when my French bulldog wears a tutu. I feel much less distressed when I'm wearing a tutu. You know, honestly. Okay. Um, <laughs> So the yeah, safety and security of our information. <laughs> okay. The Norwegian air spokesman said that the safety and security of our passengers and crew is always our number one priority after getting your money. Uh, flight <laughs> yeah. 17. Uh, I'm sorry. Flight uh, 7181 from Gatwick to Austin had not yet departed when the captain took the decision to offload emotional support dogs and their two owners at the gate due to the dogs showing signs of distress in the cabin. So there's a story. We still are not sure why the dogs were wearing tutus. But mm-hmm. when I saw bulldogs wearing tutus and uh, something aviation related, I couldn't resist. 
Quite right. I wonder what that distress smelled of. <laughs> we can kind of use our imagination. Mm-hmm. You can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I would encourage you to do so. Yes. <laughs> I'd rather not. And then finally, item C. Uh, this is from the Aviation Herald, a serious aviation website. Uh, Swift Air Boeing 737-400 registration November 420 Uniform Sierra performing flight 1996 from Santa Domingo, Dominican Republic to Miami, Florida was climbing through flight level 220 out of Santa Domingo, Santo Domingo, when the crew decided to return to Santo Domingo due to an engine. <laughs> That's due to an engine. Just, just due engine. to an engine. Uh, I think uh, what probably should be said there is some kind of a an issue with the engine um, because they never said that the engine was shut down, but there was some kind of a, something happening with the engine. I think they, uh, I was reading some other news sources that said that uh, they re- brought the uh, engine to idle power, but they didn't have to shut it down. So, um, in oh, other words, the next one a, sentence should solve your dilemma. Oh, okay. The aircraft landed safely back in Santo Domingo about 40 minutes after departure. Um, okay, that didn't help. Um, the next one. Okay. Passengers reported that they were praying the Our Father, Our Father upon learning an engine had failed. Well, again, that's not the definitive answer, but oh, okay. maybe they thought that the pilot said that the engine had failed, or like they assumed that that's what they were talking about. But that, and that could be. But uh, uh, there was a lot of commentary um, on the um, on this article that uh, I cut out, but uh, that said that they heard that they hadn't actually shut it down. Regardless, the reason why I thought this was interesting was there's a a, a, pass, a related video that a passenger ha, has taken, and it does show some of the passengers uh, praying, which is a good thing in my opinion. But uh, the, the funny thing to me was, <laughs> and it's the screenshot that I have in our show notes that yes. you'll be able to see, is a, a gentleman, a, a male passenger, uh, with a bottle of uh, brown liquor <laughs> he's necking a bottle he of is, whiskey he, he, <laughs> and he and he actually if you watch the video he kind of passes it on to some other people and i'm thinking and the reason why i wanted to talk about it on our show is that we do not recommend that you do this in this situation because think about it you know if you have to do an emergency evacuation when you get on the ground you don't want to be like half that bottle yeah you don't want to be intoxicated on you want to be or worse even if you're not like intoxicated from it yet if you just down it all at once you're not going to feel very good yeah that's true make your stomach be so i thought it's probably not he decided it was inflammable or flammable whichever way you like to say that uh, and it was better to be inside him than outside him well that's very logical true Uh, and the other thing is uh, perhaps he his particular god is at the bottom of that bottle (laughs) but you know it's possible that some of the people praying also shared that bottle as well (laughs) i'd I'd probably fit that category (laughs) anyway no 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 matter father pass that along (laughs) (laughs) anyway so i thought it was kind of uh kind of fun to see the uh, well not fun but you know just to kind of say and, and seriously though don't don't start downing a bottle of liquor when uh, nah, you uh, might have save to. it. Save it for after the you know um, successful, successful landing outcome. and yes. yeah. Yep. Celebrate your survival. Yes, Correct. yes, and that's a public service announcement from the APG. Mm-hmm. And you know what? This might be a good time for us to play a a promo because um, we're we're on a uh, 
a 24-hour feed. And uh, sometimes people listening don't know that they're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show. So here we go. Let's try this one. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Thank you, Your Majesty, for you, I. I didn't know she listened. Sent, obviously, I, mean, I feel I feel honored. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yes. I knew we had a big audience in the UK, but wow. Well, that's about as big as it gets. <laughs> that's impressive. Thank yeah. you, Captain Nick, for uh, preparing that. Uh, uh, what did we call that? Uh, station ID. Ah, is that what it was? That. I, I yeah. can't remember. Mm -hmm. Station ID. Yeah. Okay. No problem. Excellent. All right. Well, with that, then, I think uh, it's time now to get caught up with what we have been doing since the last episode. And I get to sing. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like us. Oh, that doesn't rhyme. Oh, well. Anyway, we, yes, that is from The King and I, Getting to Know You. And they did a much better job of singing than I did. But, um, so, let's see. Steph, what have yes. you been doing since the last show? Not a whole lot, to be perfectly honest. Um, Just make something. Yeah. I know. I'm trying to think of something to make up that sounds vaguely interesting and exciting. Um, and, you know, I should <laughs> to um, balance things out with the exciting life that I normally lead. Mm -hmm. Might you not be a bad to, idea to. You decided to live a dull life for a little while. <laughs> to remind everyone that that's just part of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps yeah. make some money and treat yeah. some patients for a change. Some, sometimes I have to do work to afford yeah. the things that I, they try to do um, on occasion. So oh, yeah. this past week has been filled with work. Um, last week was very busy. Um, it actually spilled into the weekend. Um, and then there's been some, uh, just some family stuff going on. So, um, just taking care of a few of those things. Um, and then this week, actually, not so bad at work. It's been steady, but relaxing, giving me time to catch up on other things. Um, and then I might go have some fun this weekend. So oh. we shall see. Well, mm -hmm. we can't wait to hear about it on the next episode. <laughs> yes. Um, Gustav uh, in the YouTube chat says, well, slow news in aviation. There's always the Max, the savior of all aviation podcasts. <laughs> And you know what? Yeah. yeah, there is a lot of stuff going on with that. But you know what? Honestly, gosh, I'm so tired of it. <laughs> so tired of it, and and you know, until there's until we have some more concrete, yeah. definitive stuff to talk about. A lot of it's um, just right. updates at the moment. And for sure, we regurgitation. Will. Yeah, regurgitation exactly. And I mean, we could talk about that, or we could talk about French bulldogs and tutus, mm. and which is much more important. I think. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We don't get into many arguments about that. All right. Well, Steph, we look forward to hearing about your exciting weekend on the next show. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, sorry. I didn't have too much else. No, to add actually, from, from it's kind of refreshing to hear the... that you're a normal person at times. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. Sometimes my life is boring. That's been the past two weeks. That's refreshing. Really, it is. Yeah. Um, Nick, how about yourself, sir? Well, uh, I came back from our lovely uh, Air Force uh, training course a reunion. So uh, managed to get about five of us who uh, were on the original 
a bunch of pilots that went through our basic flying training course, our number four course at uh, on one squadron at number four FTS. Uh, no, sorry, at number one FTS. Uh, we were four course. Um, anyway, uh, it was great. So uh, we had uh, a Knight of the Realm, uh, Captain Nige, you know, because uh, he's been on uh, one of my plane tales. I had Dick Bendy there, helicopter pilot extraordinaire who's just retired uh, from his last job, which was as a trapper with the Civil Aviation Authority. So all you helicopter pilots that flew with him while he was trapping, uh, you uh, are lucky enough to have probably encountered a very nice chap. Uh, and um, we had, uh, who else was that? Oh, yeah, uh, Dave uh, Knight, who... I'm not quite sure what he's currently doing. I don't think I asked that question, but he was uh, running Suckling Airways for quite a while. So uh, he was uh, their boss, uh, the uh, director of flight operations, held their AOC and all that stuff. So uh, brilliant. Uh, it was lovely to get in better with his chaps, uh, together again with these chaps and their ladies. Uh, so it was a great uh, weekend. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks very much for uh, tonight, for uh, putting up with us all, being a great host. Uh, yeah. I have a uh, question before yes, you move on. Uh, two things. Uh, I'm not sure I understand what the term trapping means. Um, maybe... Um, that's a term. Uh, Steph, did you understand that? Is it somebody that um, traps? I assumed errors? it was like trapping trapping animals in the woods. Well, that's what I would. <laughs> that's what I thought of. But then I'm thinking, but that doesn't have anything yeah, to do with the CAA. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. does it? What does that mean? Uh, a trap is a nickname for um, what you would term uh, someone who sits beside you and gives you a check. Oh, like an uh, inspector in um, in flight yeah, inspector. Yeah, he would or be the CAA flight inspector who would. Uh, test pilots, uh, give them their qualifications, and also uh, check and train. Gotcha. Well, it wouldn't be much of a trainer, it'd be a checker. So from, uh, how does the word trap have anything to do with? Well, that's probably a bit of an Air Force term. We always uh, called the guys who came round to give us our um, annual uh, check flight uh, from the uh, OCU. We call them trappers because... They were undoubtedly there just to trap you. Ah, uh, so, you know, they're there to help. That's what we say about the FAA. They're just here so, to help. Yeah. <laughs> we say that about them. Yeah. Well, to everyone from the FAA listening, we definitely yes, say that about. We you. always do, and we mean it. <laughs> exactly. So, hence, hence the term trapper, because you're out there to trap something. Okay, I had another uh, question. Suckling airlines or cycling airline? I didn't understand what you suckling, said. Suckling, as in oh. small pigs. I gotcha. Think. Okay. Interesting if name for an airline. Look it up on the internet. I, th okay. I, think, I think it might still be going. No, it's actually been taken over by Logan Air, I think. Oh, okay. Never heard of that. Yeah. So, Suckling airways. Here we go. Oh. And I see, is that Taco? This is Truman. Oh, Truman. Okay. Truman Hi, is Truman. in Steph's lap. He's, yes. Suckling, founded in uh, 1986 uh, by Roy and Marilyn Suckling. That's their surname. Ah, gotcha. A charter out for it. That offering oh, started working out of Ipswich and then uh, moved to Manchester and Amsterdam and flew Dorniers, uh, and then worked out of Cambridge and blah blah blah. So okay. they carried on for a while and then uh, uh, yeah, it must be a good job for them. And uh, then yeah. uh, they joined up with some other outfit. 
So I don't know the exact history, but I'm pretty sure they were taken over by... Well, uh, uh, you did share some uh, photos with us on the, the, the gathering and also an older photograph of your flight training Yes, our previous selves. We were sort of standing in the same place that we had done in our uh, sort of graduation photograph on the steps of the officer's mess, RF Lint on the news. So that was the idea. I must say that uh, you and Nigel were some some pretty sharp-looking young men there in that photo. <laughs> yeah, we were pretty skinny, weren't we? Yeah. Straight up and down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, uh, I grew out of that uh, uniform pretty damn quick. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> <laughs> okay excellent so you were gonna i was i just stopped you i interrupted you so please continue sir well there wasn't really much else to say other one no. we had a great uh weekend mm-hmm. i consumed way too much of everything but uh nige is a fabulous host and uh since then i have just done the, the latest plain tale and also started the next one uh so oh and of course it's um we're now a four-hour time difference between you and us until your clocks move. That is fine. So I think this will be the only show I yeah. get uh, to go yep. to bed an hour early, which mm-hmm. is really nice. You get our We're, extra hour uh, of sleep this weekend. Exactly. I got an extra hour's lie-in. So we are now GMT or UTC, depending on uh, your age and who, which, which way you like to set your clocks. Or Zulu so time, whichever, yeah. Yes, yes. That's another way of expressing it. Um, and... Uh, uh, when do you change yours uh, next weekend? Sunday. Yep. This, this, this weekend. weekend. Oh, this coming weekend. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, England are playing uh, South Africa in the uh, Rugby World Cup final on Saturday. Ooh. So, rah, rah, we um, thrashed within an inch of their lives the Kiwis, the previous world champions, the All Blacks, oh. uh, who Glenn assumed were going to be victorious Uh his uh, tweets that we were sharing whilst the match was going on became more and more quiet as everything. You know, the, I think that Glenn is quite fond of you. Fact, I, I, think think we're, I think we're going to find out about that later yes. on too. <laughs> I uh, hope so. It's not personal. It's not personal. What time does that match good. happen? Uh, the match happens Saturday morning here in the UK. Uh, it is being played in Tokyo. That's where the, oh. the uh, competition is this year. And uh, actually, the uh, Japan Japanese t- team did very well. Actually, they got through. I think they were knocked out in the quarterfinals, so that's very good because they're obviously. Oh, I think I knew that actually, because when I was in Tokyo earlier in the year, they were advertising it quite a bit. Do they use sumo wrestlers for the uh, rugby for the team? advertisements? Well, they yeah, have the, the potential to produce some very uh, muscular chaps, <laughs> and they, they play a very fast, uh, free-flowing game, which it suits their physique yeah. because they're not as heavily built as uh, a lot of the other. Unless players. they're the sumo wrestlers. Exactly. They're and not they're quite very as free-flowing. <laughs> very but slow game. Scrum. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. There's another Grand Prix coming up, and hopefully uh, uh, Hamilton, our, uh, our you know British racing driver who is currently ahead of the uh, championship, will uh, tie away the championship and uh, become the world champion this uh, coming weekend. So that'll be exciting. So looking forward to a good weekend. It's actually in the United States. It's the uh, U.S. Grand Prix Austin, in Austin, Texas. Yes. Mm. So are you going down there? I am not. Along with all the um, French Bulldogs and Tutus. Yes. Weren't they yes. going to Austin? Oh, that's right. Maybe that's they where they like, were going. <laughs> maybe. They like tutus yeah. in Austin. I love Austin. They have great barbecue. Great brisket. Great. Oh, man, oh, it's good. Okay. Really good. 
I might just mm-hmm. have to go to Austin, but I think it's yeah. probably going to be. You should tough. go this weekend for the. Uh, I should for the race. I probably won't, but I should do it. Yeah, do it. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. The only sporting event I'll be watching this weekend is the New York City Marathon. I'm uh, not going to be there in person for it, but that's fascinating. I'll watch it to on watch. the TV. What do you yes. just watch people running? Yeah, it's great. Okay. <laughs> for about two and a half hours. But then people, you, would, you watch people just driving. Cars. I know. I was going to say people would say the same thing. <laughs> What's it? They're just driving cars around on the circuit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ray Williams in the chat room has just uh, said, go box. So presumably he will be supporting the spring box, uh, uh, the South African team this weekend. Uh, Because he is South African, Mr. Ray Williams. Absolutely. They're a very, quote, physical team, unquote. So I think there's going to be plenty of blood. Oh, boy. Hmm. No, everybody will mm, be sure to tune it. in for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, that's it for me, sir. Okay. My turn. Oh, apart from uh, an, another thank you for my gin soul mm-hmm. to Kirsten and Stefan. Thank you very much indeed. He really he does, does like really it. Really He's not just saying I it. really do mm-hmm. like it. And the stone bottle it comes in. Yes. I think he's wanting more. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a plea for... Yeah. Uh, I, I, it was a very generous gift, and I would never expect more. But yes. If another one arrives, I certainly <laughs> won't be sending it back. <laughs> We've I have changed. no choice but to consume it. It's no longer yes, the coffee exactly. fund, it's the gin fund. <laughs> I think we're all okay with that, actually. Yeah, Moth- okay. Mother's ruined. One, one yeah. beverage, another beverage we all agree on. Yeah. yeah. All right. Oh, good. Um... Let's see. Uh, Dana, by the way, uh, is not with us today, sadly. Um, he is, um, they, I guess he did. He's stealing candy from little children. Yeah, I think so. I, I, there was some kind of a misunderstanding mm-hmm. there with that, uh, the young people. Um, and he thought it was Halloween yesterday. And he just was confused. And he was spending the night in the local jail. So um, <laughs> we're, our hearts and prayers are with you, Dana. No, he's, he's uh, running some errands, wasn't able to make it today but i'm sure he'll tell us all about what he was up to today when he is back with us on our next show so i think that's for certain yes absolutely and uh, i uh flew a a three-day four-day four-day trip i just got back today monday through thursday and on tuesday i was in syracuse new york and i got to meet up with again uh stefan balmer and his eight-year-old son at Blue Monkey Japanese Restaurant, and uh, right there, um, very close to the hotel, and right there at Syracuse University, and that was a, a nice um, kind of a late lunch with them, and then later on in the day, I got to meet up with uh, Tom Catalino, also from the Syracuse area, obviously, and um, we had a, a drink or two at the bar in the hotel, and uh, that was a, a great time as well, so thank you guys for for taking the time out to meet up with me, and I really enjoyed it. And then yesterday, I was in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Hello. Is it, is it always, do we always hear like a bell when, when we hear Toronto? Ding, ding. Toronto. Oh, it's, the, it's somebody at the door probably for tri- probably trick-or-treaters. Oh. Could be. That wasn't my house, Bad luck. Was that your house, Nick? <laughs> no, not my oh. house. Well, where did they We've come had from? had a bunch, but they've gone quiet for well, a bit. Well, it didn't come from me, so... That's interesting. Okay. Oh, you know what? It was my computer. Oh, your computer. Sorry. Okay. No problem. I don't know why it's sending me messages. Subliminal messages. Ah. Not okay. so subliminal. It's trying messages. to tell you that somebody's at the door it's, and wants candy. <laughs> it's telling me that my um, keyboard batteries are very low replace soon. 
Ah, okay. You should do that. So perhaps I should do that. Okay. Don't go ahead. Um, so anyway, I got to meet up with the producer of the APG, Liz Piper, uh, yesterday in Toronto. And uh, she came by the hotel, picked me up, and gave me the grand tour of the uh, downtown Toronto area. A lot of history and uh, parliamentary buildings and Catholic schools and all kinds of... I learned all kinds of things about Toronto. I, You know, I never knew that... Um, TD, I don't know if you have them in the UK, uh, but it's a bank. Actually, over here, it's TD Ameritrade. It's a, it's a, um, like a, what do you call it? Securities trading company, financial organization. And I noticed that uh, they were all over the place in Toronto. And it turns out that it was a, or is a bank. And I said, what, what does TD stand for? And she said, Toronto and Dominion. And I guess those are two big banks that kind of merged together. Am I getting that right, Liz? Give me a thumbs up. <laughs> Don't type it. I'm not going to see it. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, the, um, yep, I got that right. Thank you, Liz. And then after that, we went and had, or we were on our way to a, a really nice little cute hole in the wall Thai restaurant. Um, very nice, uh, very authentic Thai food. And it was wonderful. We had uh, green curry chicken and uh, pad Thai and, um, Mango salad, I think. It was uh, very delicious. So we enjoyed that. We, that's where we Sounds had our good. business meeting. I'm, I'm curious. Were these yeah. blue monkeys macaques? Um, I, I I guess that that's what that means. Because don't don't the Japanese have blue monkeys? Well, I, I don't oh. think they have blue ones necessarily, but they do have snow monkeys. And I guess they uh, would turn blue if they got cold enough. Yeah. And, but... But the blue is spelled B-L-E-U, so it's like the French spelling of blue. And so I'm not sure exactly what that is all about. They just didn't spell Chicken it cordon bleu? It could be, yeah. could be that they spelled it incorrectly. They're about eating monkey brains. Hmm. All right, thank you for that. And hope that's not what we were eating. <laughs> <laughs> Although the chicken did taste a little odd. Jeff is concerned mm. now, very concerned. It is a surprisingly common name, actually, blue monkey. There's a... Oh, Quite a big UK brewery called Blue Monkey. Oh. Uh, you can get a number of uh, Blue Monkey beers. There's an awful lot of Blue Monkey uh, cafes and bars around the world. So I'm just curious where the name comes from. I assume it has something to do with, I don't know, monkeys? <laughs> um, <laughs> who knows? I have no idea what Genius. it has to do with a Japanese Genius. restaurant. But okay, that, yeah, I'm pretty brilliant, aren't I? Yeah, Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, uh, let's see. What else do I have here? Uh, oh, um, so, oh, probably the most exciting part of the visit yesterday with Liz was that um, she closed. Uh, am I allowed to talk about this, Liz? About your new place? She's sending me a message. Okay. Um, she bought a new, uh, or a new to her condo, beautiful place. And uh, while we were out gallivanting around, uh, she got a call from the uh, the realtor, I believe, and uh, she closed yesterday. And uh, she said, "They said come by and pick up the keys." So I said, "Yes, let's go and pick up those keys." And then she said, "Let me show you the place." So I got the uh, I'm the first one that got to see the condo. Yay! <laughs> and uh, it's a beautiful place and uh, a beautiful courtyard that it opens up to. And uh, just uh, anyway, thank you, Liz, for showing me that. It was a lot of fun. And let's see, I should mention that next Tuesday, I'll be back in Toronto 
and we're going to have a an APG meetup, and it is going to be at the Scatabush Italian Kitchen and Bar on 200 Front Street in West Toronto, and uh, the reservation is for 5.45 p.m. Again, that's on Tuesday, the 5th of November, and the reservation is in the name of Liz Piper, and Liz says, please let her know if you're coming, if you already, if you haven't already. So uh, that's Liz at AirlinePilotGuy.com. So if you're in the area and you want to meet up with a bunch of great people that are aviation enthusiasts and uh, want to talk aviation and whatever else. They'll be on the table next door. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Might be. So again, uh, the Scatabush Italian Kitchen and Bar 200 Front Street. So there you go. It's pretty close to my hotel, I believe. Excellent. Yeah. And again, uh, just a reminder that one of the great things that we have on our website, the community calendar is there, the ABG calendar, and it's a great place to see where the crew is and if we have any meetups scheduled and details about the meetups and all that kind of stuff. So there you have it. And I think that the that's about the only thing for me that I've been doing since the last episode. And on Monday, I'll be back out again on, on a three-day trip. There we go. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Can I do a quick shout out? Yes. Uh, Ex uh, Royal Australian Air Force uh, FA team fighter pilot Chase Colcott has just joined uh, the Facebook uh, chat group. So, uh, absolutely brilliant. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Hi, Chase. Hey. Very good. All right. I think now would be a good time for us to talk about the way that you can support our show financially. Oh, great. I'll pour another gin. Please do. Gin time! Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. Gin! I love coffee. I love gin. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. As I mentioned, it's your way to support the show financially if you are in a position to do so. And uh, if you want to join us, the uh, Coffee Fund Cadre, the Coffee Bar Club, or whatever you want to call this great group of folks, uh, you can find information about it by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. One way to do it, the Coffee Fund Classic Method, basically a PayPal contribution page, Uh, Either a one-time donation or a recurring donation is possible there. And since the last episode, we have recurring donations from Alistair Kerr, Jason Kuntz, Vigner, Wannison, and that's it. And then we have a couple of uh, one-time or one-offs from Randy Ward and Mazus Karim. And both of those actually kind of do contributions on a recurring basis. So thank you all for contributing to the fund via the uh, classic method. The other way to uh, support the show financially is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And we have a new producer. Yay. Martin Kemp joined the uh, patrons at patreon.com. Again, information about the coffee fund is on the website, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Let's start off with uh, item one. Louis, um, he says, hello team, extremely avid listener here since 2013. Wow, that's been a while. 
when I was about when I was about 17. This is my first email to you. I'm 24 now and have all the ATPL exams completed and half my hour building completed at Blackbush in the UK. Oh, good job. That was the airfield my old man started his aviation uh, airline career at. Oh, is that um, somewhere near where you live, Nick? Oh, yeah, just up the road. Uh, He would have started flying there in about 1953, somewhere around there. Oh, okay. Just a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Do carry on. Oh, it was a it was a great interruption. I I, I welcome them. Um, I would very much like to travel to the USA to build to our build cost effectively, and have a school in mind in Colorado called the Rocky Mountain Flight School. I really wanted to know if anyone had any advice or contacts in the neck of the woods or any better ideas. Any advice or help would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Blue skies, big afterburners, and unrestricted climbs. All the best. Louis. Well, first of all, Louis, Lovely. thanks for, you know, for hanging in there for uh, with us for so long, since 2013. And uh, congrats on your completion of the, a- the ATPL exams. Looks like you're on your way, sir. And I have not heard of the Rocky Mountain Flight School, but I have I do have some advice for you. If somebody offers you some Rocky Mountain, what are they called? Uh, stuff? Chocolate? No. Um, Rocky Mountain oh. High? High? No, no, no. 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 Well, <laughs> you'll probably... You, if There's you're a lot in, of Rocky Mountain things. No, it's like the... the, the Ice cream? The, the testicles of, um, of, of some kind Oysters. of animal. Oysters. Rocky Mountain Oysters. Rocky Mountain Oysters. That's it. Don't eat them. Steph is looking at me like she's never... You've never heard of that I've stuff? I've never heard that What? Term. Rocky Mountain what? Oysters. Even I knew about yeah. Rocky Mountain Oysters. They were, I live uh, a sheltered existence. What can I say? Apparently. Wow. Not really, but just... Well, I mean, you're, you're, you you're always eat those like uh, spicy chips, you know, with the ghost peppers. I think uh-huh. now, now, you should write this down. For the I next, need uh, to eat Rocky Mountain Oysters. Anyway. Got it. Um, I'll be sure to check it out. Yeah. So, Probably not. I'm sorry. I was looking at uh, a message <laughs> from somebody. You'd frozen. <laughs> I know. I was unsure if he was like still with us or not. Anyway, I, I, I didn't know if uh, the message that I had coming in on a private uh, channel was uh, something important or not. Yeah. Um, Probably not. But, um, I. By the way, I would avoid any uh, flight school to do with Rocky Mountain. Uh, uh, John Denver wasn't uh, <laughs> didn't come out very good when he messed about and he sang about it all the time. Yeah, but you know, I don't think he's a good representative of yeah, flying in Colorado. But, uh, yeah. Really? But anyway, it's, uh, so Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport where this flight school is looks beautiful. Um, I've not actually been there, but Denver Front Range areas is a gorgeous place. And um, hopefully someone who is listening to our show right now has some information about it because uh, that APG community that we love so much. They are very knowledgeable about all kinds of things and they are all over the world. And hopefully someone in the Denver area is listening and can give us some information to pass along to you. And one of those people listening right now, one of our co-hosts, Captain Danny, I mean, Captain Dana, (laughs) uh, just sent us some communication. That was what was uh, getting my attention there. Uh, He's driving now uh, back from South Carolina and he said that he has all types of ideas on this feedback. And he said that traffic is horrible due to Halloween and bad weather. And looks like he's going to be home in about 40 minutes. So, oh, Dana, if you make it back in time and we're still doing the show, please uh, feel free to join us and perhaps express uh, 
you know, some advice or whatever for Louis uh, needing help regarding this. So I'll tell you how knowledgeable our, our audience are. Mark Jennings, Lane Street, Tanya, Uber Frank, Dave Ogden, all came up with oysters before Steph did. I would have never come up with it because I was not familiar. I was very surprised that you, I figured that you would be the one that would know exactly what I was trying, the word that I was looking for. But uh, nope. you let me down. Sorry. Yeah. I, I learned something today, though. So thank you all. Oh, you're welcome. Yes. I'm not sure. <laughs> not we, sure if I wanted to learn yeah, that. I'm not sure that we're very proud of you the know, knowledge teaching. that you've imparted. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I have not yet, uh, yet probably never will uh, taste that. Well, delicacy. I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll set up a tasting party. Yeah. So, hey, Louie. Um, please just, uh, hang in there. I know we didn't have a very good answer for you, but I have a feeling we will have some feedback regarding this. So just, uh, keep listening, please. And with that, we'll move on to item two from John. He sent us some audio feedback, so let's hear what he has to say. Good morning. It's John from Duluth, longtime sufferer of the APC syndrome and quite grateful for the mutual support group that the family all provides here on APG Network. I had a comment about something said during episode 391 with respect to the lithium-ion batteries and the need or perceived need of people to charge their devices while in flight. And Nick was talking about certain types of people who might be inclined to shop for the very lowest price. I didn't say the best value, but the lowest price. And the question then occurs, these are the same sort of folks with the same mindset that would look for the absolute cheapest airline seat. Remember those seats all the way in the back of an Acme airplane? Or like the domestic Atlanta-based carrier iFly one that's based in Atlanta, there are no power plugs in the back. And that almost sets up a situation encouraging the use of external batteries. Perhaps it might be an idea to consider to install external power sources for all passengers, since we already know that all passengers are going to be using electronic devices that are going to need charging, whether they're in first class, comfort plus, or all the way back in steerage. I kind of would like to know what you guys think about the idea. Anyways, so you guys are tremendous. You put on a fantastic program. You've accompanied me on many a long commute and many long driving trips and on a few cross-country trips on various carriers. Thank you so much for what you do. Blue skies and better than forecast tailwinds. Take care. Thank you, John, for that. Well, it sounds like you were on a nice walk. Watch out for those birds, his, though. They sense like <laughs> through horse. the prairie. It did sound like nice. I just like assumed he had a squeaky hip. But, <laughs> oh, well, it could be that. Uh, could have been a bird, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, John. I'm sure your hips are fine. Any thoughts about uh, what he was expressing there regarding the, uh, the the battery issue, and then maybe you know having 
a plentiful supply of power um, outlets on board airplanes to you know i of, think it's a good idea I uh, anything that uh, that prevents people from dragging out their great big power packs uh would be advantageous uh, of course the advantage of having them in the cabin anyway is that if there is a problem with them the cabin crew can deal with them fairly promptly put them in one of the uh, the new special fireproof bags that most airlines now carry douse them and uh, put them out but they're still a, a major risk so it, you know we'd rather people didn't use them um although quite honestly it's not the use of them that's the problem it's when they get damaged or when they're being recharged or when they're being, you know, if they get crushed, dropped on the floor, but I, uh, you know, or left in your overhead locker and someone jams a bag in and breaks it and then it starts to short circuit and overheat. So I don't think you can entirely remove the risk. People are still going to carry them, but uh, no, I think it's a pretty good idea. Might be able to I think limit. people are going to, are going to take that uh, power supply at their seat and plug their lithium-ion battery pack into it. <laughs> Oops. And then plug all of their electronic devices into one plug with a bunch of splitters on it uh, so they can charge all their devices while they're, you know. And the only reason why you're saying that stuff is that's exactly what you would do. I can, right? I have no comment. Okay. <laughs> on the grounds it may incriminate her. That, you know, he's called taking the fifth. Yes, yes. I think, okay. doesn't, I, I think I recall, I was sitting in the very back seat of a, of an Airbus A321, and I, I think that there were uh, power outlets throughout that airplane. I think the, the new depends airplanes. Depends on now, the, depends, depends on, on the, yes, on when it's been. Um, the age of the airplane. Recently, the age of the aircraft, the carrier, mm -hmm. the configuration, all kinds of different things, even amongst, um, so the, the, uh, the carrier that is most frequently found here in the Charlotte area mm -hmm. has aircraft that have come from different airlines that have all merged together over time. And so even across similar aircraft types, I think that's changing a little bit now that everything's um, become a little bit more standardized, but uh, aircraft configuration were a little bit different. And sometimes you'd find power, no power, in-flight entertainment systems, no in-flight entertainment systems. It just depends. I think that, uh, yeah, Acme's fleet, other than the fleet that I'm on, <laughs> have um the entire airplane i think is pretty much covered you know with the uh, seat back entertainment systems they have a little uh usb port mm -hmm. in almost every uh, like right below the screen so um I, yeah they i think that they're trying they're heading that way and they're moving toward the entire fleet of aircraft to, to have uh, some kind of charging capability uh on the airplanes um and i i must say that the uh, the mad dogs that we fly at acme um, some of the, uh, well, all the first class and, uh, co comfort plus seating has the power outlets available. And, uh, so e even that airplane, um, they're, they're hip to the fact that, uh, we need to have as much, uh, electrical power available to the passengers as possible. I don't know if it's because of the issue with the, with a lithium I think it's, I think it's just more, um, convenience. so, you know, it's convenience. Um, it's probably something that's relatively easy to install, especially if there was already inflate entertainment systems there already. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think if you think about how airlines generate revenue in terms of having people sign up for inflate Wi-Fi or, um, different entertainment options on their own devices, even, um, they want to be able to make sure people can keep those things right. charged. Yes, because uh, we 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 really push that at Acme. Um, you know, kind of 
the entertainment on your own device and it's all free. You know, mm-hmm. have access to the, uh, in fact, at some point soon, I think that uh, Wi-Fi, all Wi-Fi, uh, regardless of whether you use the, the entertainment um, system that we have or the entertainment portal on the Wi-Fi or whether you just, you know, surf in the web, whatever, it's going to be free at some point at Acme. Oh, so well, that'd be nice. They're very, uh, very keen to get that uh, available for, for nothing. So, so maybe not a revenue source. Nope, not uh, it. I think it may be at this point, but I think that uh, for at least our airline, they're going to. It's not going to be a direct revenue source, other than people wanting to fly us because it's free. Not the sure, flying part, sure. but the the, the, the Wi-Fi. Yeah, the ticket's yeah. not free. <laughs> right, right. Uber. Well, sorry, Uber. Frank wants to know if the Mad Dog slows down when everyone plugs in. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Because have to shovel it, more coal. It, it does not affect the coal-powered uh, engines. <laughs> uh, it's a great question, though, Uber, Frank. Okay. Um, item four. Uh, this is from Tony three? Smith. Hmm? Oh, three. Did three? I skip three? You oh, did. I did. Look at that. I was already ahead of myself, and then I, I decided to skip, skip down even more ahead of myself. <laughs> okay, let's, let's do three, then. Uh, Alex uh, sent us some audio feedback. Let's hear what he has to say. True, this is Alex from Central Oklahoma. And yesterday morning, I rented a Cherokee and flew my buddy from Oklahoma City to Dallas to watch the OU Texas football game. Boomer, uh, OU luckily came out victorious in that. Um, but it was a logistically challenging flight for me just because it was um, the longest flight I had taken since getting my private a few months ago. Uh, a lot of flying, hand flying without, you know, autopilot in one day for me. And uh, I flew into a Class Delta airport nestled under the DFW Class Bravo. So a lot of planning went into it, and I was happy to see that uh, the planning paid off and it made the flying part a lot easier. But uh, coming back, I was leaving the, uh, the Addison Airport in, Dow- in the Dallas area, and there was a, a lot of traffic departing after the game. So I was behind about five aircraft on the taxiway and, you know, in the run-up area, and I was there for quite a while, so I ended up uh, monitoring tower while still on ground, and uh, just so I could have a better understanding of what was going on, and after about 20, 25 minutes, I I guess I had forgotten that I had not switched over to tower, and uh, proceeded to, like a dummy, tell ground that I was ready for departure, and they kind of said, well, that's great, but why don't you, um, why don't you tell tower that as well? And, you know, so I did, and they were really nice about it. went off uh, without a hitch other than that. Uh, just had to roll by uh, my fellow pilots while they got to look at the idiot who had um, made a small mistake. And, you know, I think, it's, uh, I think it's important for pilots to learn from their mistakes and always strive for perfection. And uh, kind of led me to wonder, in your careers, long flying careers, uh, guys and gals, what um, – what are the worst mistakes you've made and, and how did you learn from those and how did it affect the way you do things? And uh, I think it's important for pilots to learn from each other. Um, and so very interested to hear that. I uh, hope you guys have a great day, uh, clear skies, tailwinds, and thanks for the time. Bye. Well, thank you, Alex. Um, I can go, I can start by saying that I've never made a mistake. So maybe my co-host made a mistake. Right then, leader. you just made your first mistake. Then <laughs> <laughs> my my the worst mistake that I made was starting an aviation podcast ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and second worst mistake, inviting more people to join. Yes, him. yes, so. yes, absolutely. 
Uh, How about as it relates to flying? Any flying. mistakes you care to? Mm. I can start. Or, yeah, go ahead, Nick. So uh, this was not an important trip at all. It was my final release line ride as a captain. So um, it was the first time I was going to get to fly with a real first officer. And um, the uh, trainer was on the jump seat. So in theory, I was already a captain, but you have to be released onto the line by passing this trip. So this was your last uh, hurdle to jump. Anyway, we going to LA, uh, my first landing there. And we were doing the Santa Monica arrival, which involves going out over the ocean, going effectively then downwind for a right-hand uh, base turn uh, onto runway 24 left. Uh, and uh, as we were going downwind, I, never having flown this approach, I'm looking at the charts, and it says the charts show about a 15-mile downwind leg and a nice easy turn in, and you go down to about 3,000 feet and turn in. So I was just judging my descent according to this profile that was on the chart. And about halfway down this leg, at about two and a half or 3,000 feet high to the profile, the controller turned me straight onto base to slot me into a tiny gap she had found between two aircraft on finals and promptly switched runways on me to a runway that was no-termed as being a localizer-only approach. I had my first time with a lovely bloke, but hadn't done many U.S. trips, and he was unable to decipher anything that any American had told him uh, on the entire... <laughs> the American portion of the flight. I was having to translate all the radio calls. So, uh, anyway. Are we that hard to understand? Wow. Well, <laughs> for him, yeah, for him, and the American okay. accent is... He doesn't watch enough troublesome. Hollywood movies, <laughs> He obviously not. Yeah. No. He led a sheltered life. What I American suspect. accent? What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> what are you um, talking about? So I was too, uh, way too high, uh, not configured, trying to switch uh, the... Uh, runway across in the gear, tune the uh, new localizer, uh, and sort myself out, as well as doing everything else I need to do anyway. We finally got ourselves established, and I looked down at this runway, and I thought, well, there's no way in, in if I'm ever going to get in off this approach. We're way too high. So uh, we did a go around. Luckily, I remembered a level at 2,000 feet. Uh, descend to and level at 2,000 feet, which is the go-around altitude, and uh, did a, a pretty neat and reasonable go-around and uh, went around the pattern again. But uh, sadly, I failed the trip. So that was a big learning curve for me. Uh, I don't know how I was going to fix it because it's just one of those things that sometimes happens. Sometimes the workload builds up and you just can't cope. Uh, with it, all the inputs and do everything you wanted to do. Subsequently, of course, whenever I flew that approach, I always uh, descended straight over the Santa Monica beacon and came straight down to the minimum height of that leg so that if they did turn me in early, I didn't have any excess altitude. So that was, I guess, the learning curve I yeah. found out about that. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's what we do. We learn from our mistakes, and hopefully yep. the mistake is not so bad that <laughs> you you have the opportunity to you know, learn from it. and Exactly right. Sure. So the company gave me a couple of extra trips uh, in the States to uh, familiarize myself uh, with a with few the more operations. 
Exactly. <laughs> Bearing in mind that I've been doing almost exclusively Far East flying up to that point where they're very uh, civilized. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's that doesn't just that word doesn't did you, describe did us. You, did you understand what he just said? Where they're ver- very civilized. I, oh, I heard. I understood. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that would that would have been the other mistake. I was I nearly smacked an F four into a cliff face. But apart from that, I've you yeah. know, had a pretty trouble. You shared both of those with happen. us before, but it's always good to hear yeah. them again so we yeah, can make absolutely. fun of it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Help sure. yourself. I'm sure I've made lots and lots and lots of mistakes, but as a uh, new private pilot, Alex, I can share one that I made as a relatively new private pilot. I had um, flown to a just a short cross-country trip to a nearby airport to um, pick up some friends who had landed on a commercial flight at that airport, and I was going to take them back to a closer airport to where we live, just kind of for, for fun. Um, so picked them up at the FBO. We walked out on the plane. Took care of everything pre-flight wise, got in, started up, um, called for taxi instructions, and then um, realized that I had not unchocked the wheels. So it was not going to be going anywhere right that moment. Yeah. So, Oops. Uh, yeah, you know, double check that. If you put enough one. power on, you just go over them. Yeah, you know, you can, but uh, <laughs> that's true. It's always slightly embarrassing, especially when you've got a couple of friends with you and that you're trying you to know, impress with you. You're your... trying to, yeah, exactly. Like, well, that's a, that's a good start to this trip. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to be on the lookout. I have for. made so many mistakes. I mean, so here's the deal. Um, none of us ever fly an airplane and don't make some sort of mistake. I mean, we all make mistakes, whether there be very minor mistakes yeah. or major ones. We hope that there are mostly minor mistakes. Um, and, and you reminded me stuff of the, the first time that I had flown or I was, yeah, I was in the captain's seat of a 727 in Atlanta and we just pushed back and, you know, I'd, I'd gone through the simulator program, but I've not actually flown the air, I've flown the airplane seven years in the right seat, a year and a half on the panel, but I'd never flown as captain on the airplane. And we pushed back and started up the engines, a couple of engines, and I, uh, they, the first officer, the line check airman, called for taxi, and I started pushing up the throttles, pushing up the throttles. I'm thinking, wow, it really takes much more power than I thought it would. <laughs> I felt somebody tap, tap my shoulder and point to the uh, parking brake, which was still on. <sighs> And yes. went, oh, yeah. <laughs> no wonder. Of course. <laughs> yeah, to took the parking brake off it. Yeah, yeah the parking brake off, and believe it or not, it actually rolled pretty, pretty, pretty well mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was. But I can think of all kinds of times, you know, just uh, yeah, talking on the radio was a, a skill to be learned for me as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I I've intercepted the uh, ILS at three hundred and twenty knots before. <laughs> How did that turn out? Not in a Cessna, folks. <laughs> we got it in, which was <laughs> All in right. the days before stabilized approach criteria. Yes. <laughs> okay. And luckily enough, uh, the Cape Town uh, air traffic controllers didn't object to me exceeding 250 knots below 10. Mm-hmm. Much. <laughs> so, much. yeah, much. We, um, yeah, we. I, I guess the best way to learn from mistakes is to learn from other, especially really serious mistakes, to learn from others' mistakes. That's why we, on this show, we talk a lot about incidents and accidents because, as 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 hard as it is sometimes to talk about them, um, it's so important in our community to discuss them because we hopefully learn something from them. So, absolutely. All right. Thank you, Alex. That was a great question. Appreciate that. Um. Item four, 
from Tony. I've just been listening to APG 394 and it prompted me to comment on a couple of points. I was fascinated by the feedback from Colonel Jeff regarding the Boeing 737 trim. The discussion regarding the trim wheel was really interesting, but what interested me even more was Jeff's idea that he would try out various maneuvers uh, when he was in the sim in November to see the effects of aerodynamic loads on the control surfaces and its effect on the trim wheel. It led me to wonder exactly how a simulator would be able to answer this question. I understand the concept of programming the flight characteristics of a particular aircraft to replicate the real-life situation, but I assume that this would be the designed response. What happens when, as possibly in the case of the MAX, the designed response sets up a situation outside of those expected parameters? The programmer of the simulator cannot be expected to be able to predict this unlikely happening, and thus the simulator would do what it was told to do. Uh, AI may eventually be able to refine this, but I don't think that is currently the case. So would the exceptional high loads be replicated? Any ideas or an explanation? Um, I was also struck by the discussion on flying hours. Clearly short haul pilots have met, uh, much more experience of takeoff and landing than long haul for any given number of hours. They also may well fly in much more congested airspace. It's a more extreme case, but how do you feel about the use of second officers in some Middle East airlines, Emirates in particular, I think, who have second officers who are employed to fly the aircraft purely in cruise? I'm told they are referred to as cruise pilots. They don't get to take off or land the aircraft. I have a feeling that they are allowed to count a portion of those hours to their original or official flying hours. And finally, uh, nothing to do with the above. I was so pleased to hear mention of the old de Havilland Dove. I've never actually been airsick, but the closest I came was in a Dove operated by Cranfield University. I was on a flight testing course and spent a little over an hour poring over some pretty primitive instruments in a Dove whilst the pilot treated us to a series of roller coaster maneuvers designed to measure stick force per G. I still can't remember much about vertical stability, but I don't blame the Dove. A super little plane. <laughs> yeah, not Brilliant. optimal situation there. <laughs> Thanks I for your it. super podcast. And Tony Smith, and he's from Perford. And uh, he's he's also sorry that he lives in Perford, apparently. So it's Perford. Sorry. Okay. You, you <laughs> no, no, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, that's, that's a joke. Uh, don't worry, Tony. Yeah, uh, it's a bad joke. Sorry. <laughs> uh, he knows exactly how to pronounce it because there's a song in American called Sorry with a Fringe on Top. There is? <laughs> yeah. Huh? From the musical Oklahoma, I'm sure. Oh, that Oklahoma uh, thing again. Yeah, Sorry with a Fringe on Top. It's a, Oklahoma <laughs> with a fringe. Isn't that a, a carriage with a little uh, with a roof? I don't know. You'll have to uh, work that one out. I, I can answer the first one. Yes. Yeah, um, simulators uh, replicate all sorts of different uh, situations. And whilst, of course, it's impossible for them to go outside the tested and uh, examine uh, flight envelope, because if no one's flown, uh, then how do you simulate it? You can't replicate something that hasn't existed. You can extrapolate, and that's what they do uh, to the best of their ability. But quite honestly, that extrapolation is only relatively limited. Now, when it comes to the 737 and its trim uh, characteristics, now that's been well known for a long time, and it uh, is 
um, fed into the um, machinery of the simulator to correctly um, replicate that. And I've seen a video of uh, Scandinavian uh, crew doing exactly uh, what we were discussing, uh, moving the trim wheel at high trim loads, uh, control loads, I should say, or better put, not moving the trim wheel at high trim loads because it had got so stiff that they were unable to shift it uh, until the trim, the stick loads were released. And so, yes, it has been replicated with the SIN. How accurate that is from aircraft to aircraft, of course, is a different question because uh, we're talking about long lengths of steel cable going down aircraft. Uh, control loads may vary on individual aircraft. Uh, the situation might be slightly different. Uh, so, But it, I think it's a fair representation or will be a fair representation. I, do, I have actually thought about this quite a bit in my three-decade career of uh, flying in the airlines. Like, how, you know, how accurate are some of the uh, the, the ways that the aircraft responds to certain things. And it, I'm sure it has limitations and restrictions that uh, they, you know, they, they can't think of everything and then they possibly can't know, you know, exactly how an airplane is going to feel or respond to certain things. So I think that, uh, you know, probably 99% of what is expected to be experienced in the airplane is, is pretty well replicated in the simulator, but uh, there has to be a, a certain percentage that uh, they just don't know, you know. So uh, it's a good question, I think. And uh, but Nick makes the point that uh, you know this this issue with the uh, loads on the control surfaces at higher speeds is something that uh, you know they've they've dealt with from you know the the '60s when they um, designed this particular model and other airplanes before that. You know, like, as I mentioned many times, the 727 has the same kind of a manual trim system as a backup and the 707 did as well. So uh, they have a lot of data on it, I, I suppose. Um, the discussion uh, regarding flying hours and the uh, how we feel about the system that some airlines have of uh, having pilots there just strictly for the cruise. I don't know enough about it myself to know exactly what the uh, what the requirements are for, for these pilots and, you know, what kind of training they have to be able to take over the airplane and actually land it or whatever in a situation when the, when the, the, the regular pilots or whatever they call them, um, are incapacitated. The real pilots, way. the real pilots, yeah. <laughs> the non-cruise the handling, pilots. The handling pilots. The, yeah. 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 Probably, probably the wrong I've term. always thought that that was kind of a, kind of a weird thing. You know, it, my company, we have, um, on our longer segments, We'll have a captain and two first officers, and I think that uh, that's the way it works with uh, Nick's um, airline as well. Uh, but everybody well, we had full- cruise pilots for a while. Oh, we did, did dabble with it. Yes. Well, you know what? You should talk about it then because you have experience with this. Sure, uh, happy to. Yeah, um, a number of our guys joined and uh, were recruited as cruise pilots. Some were flight engineers who were uh, upgrading into the pilot seat. Uh, and for, I don't think we took on many, probably a couple of courses, so perhaps 20 guys or so, and they were restricted uh, f- 
to sit in the seat just for the cruise. So top of climb to top of descent, that was their portion. And they sat in the seat for a length of time during that in order to let one of the handling pilots uh, go and take a break. Um, I never liked the idea. Uh, I think there's so little to be gained from doing that. Uh, and any flight training you've done prior to that, was going to be eroded um, all the time that you sat and didn't handle the aircraft. They became very good at managing the aircraft in the cruise, and um, they had their training augmented by uh, an awful lot of simulators. So they were regularly put into the box, much more regularly than the average uh, pilot, not just for check rides, but for training and augmentation to improve their skills. And they could, uh, if needs be, certainly they proved it in the simulator, bring the aircraft uh, in and land it. But, of course, they only ever saw that from the back of the cockpit in reality. So they never actually flew an approach until they did a first officer's course when they moved on from second pilot to first pilot, first officer, second officer to first officer. So uh, I didn't like it. I thought it was... Uh, counterproductive. It's not a great way to train people. It's not a good way for people to get flying handling experience. It just doesn't work. Uh, and I just thought it was a flawed system. Why do people do it? Because it's cheap. That's about the only justification I can think for it. Yeah. That, you, pay, you pay these guys a much reduced wage to do their job and you give them much less training uh, to put them in that seat. So that's the only um, thing I can think why airlines did it. Uh, we, after our trial, by the way, we stopped doing it. Okay. But those guys did progress and uh, several of them made captain. So, you know, they, they, they did their time. They then served as first officers and did their time in the right-hand seat and then successfully moved to the left-hand seat. So for many of them, it was a way into the industry they might not have achieved otherwise. But I didn't like the idea at all, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, I figured there must have been, a, there must have been some incentive for the company to try this system because, and I figured it had to do something with the uh, economics Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Qantas have done it for years. Uh, I know a great friend of mine who was an F-18 pilot with me, Rowie, who spent years as a second officer, drove him bereft, poor chap. Eventually, he got, in inverted commas, promoted to the first officer's seat. Uh, he's still waiting, I think, for his command course. But, I mean, I've I've come and gone since then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's mm. been He's had almost as long a career wow. with Qantas as I had with Virgin. And uh, he still hasn't got into the left seat. Yeah, there, there's a. Um, it's kind of depressing. That's a, yeah. a, a good um, example of timing, whether you have good timing or bad timing. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. exactly right. I feel very sorry for him. Yeah. All right, and uh, yeah, the old the it was that was an acute story about the uh, the old De Havilland Dove and <laughs> getting sick in it, but uh, that was understandable if you were. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if that was a de Havilland dove that hit my window. Uh, <laughs> uh, Earlier uh, last night, yesterday? Yeah. I think it yeah, would have left more than just bang. an impression. Just a little oh, residue. Right. <laughs> mm. uh, perhaps it was de Havilland pigeon. That must have been a, <laughs> a relatively unknown model. Uh -huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> rare. Very rare. rare. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, uh, Tony. Great question. Um, Peter from New York City 
uh, he uh, sent us some audio feedback. So let's take a listen. Hello, APG crew. This is Peter in New York with a little feedback for you. Uh, heard in one of your earlier episodes, you mentioned Pan Am once being known as the world's most experienced airline. That reminds me of a story I heard an old pilot tell, older even than Nick, because the story must take place around uh, the late 70s or early 80s on uh, uh, O'Hare, when uh, Pan Am is being given instructions on uh, how to find the runway in a dark, snowy night uh, behind them. Say American Airlines plane is told to follow Pan Am, and then behind them is a Eastern Airlines plane, and this is the captain telling the story. He's following, uh, following American, and they're creeping along in the darkness, looking for the turnoff. The uh, captain there in the back's got the map on his on his lap, and he's looking for the turnoff. And when he sees that he gets to it, he notices the plane in front of him is just continuing on straight and disappears into the darkness. About a few seconds later, I guess he hears over the radio. Uh, Pan Am say, uh, uh, Tower, there seems to be a building in front of us. Tower says, ah, oh, you guys, you missed the turnoff. Uh, American, where are you? And then the American Airlines pilot coolly says, right here, behind the world's most experienced airline. <laughs> Imagine there was some laughing and cockpits around the airfield that evening. <laughs> it leads me to my, uh, my question. Uh, what are some of the funny remarks you've heard over the radio over the years uh, in flying? And uh, love the show, tailwinds and all that jazz. Bye. <laughs> Thank you, Peter, for sharing that one. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> um, the one that really just comes to mind is, uh, in my experience, uh, so there used to be this airline that uh, popped up, a, a low-cost airline in Atlanta, who ended up, so Acme had these DC-9s before they got them again. <laughs> with a merger later on but anyway our original dc9s i think they were uh mostly uh dash 30s um right around that time frame um back in the 90s i believe the um uh, some of these things were experiencing not from our fleet but other airlines were occasionally having some rapid d's because of um skin failures or whatever and so people were, you know, they were talking about it a lot in the news about the age of airplanes and everybody was concerned about how, how old airplanes were and that kind of thing. So Acme decides we're going to go ahead and get rid of these things because it's kind of a kind of a big deal uh, in the public's mind about the age of uh, airline fleets. So and as everybody knows, if anybody knows anything about Acme over time, uh, they kind of changed their philosophy regarding the age of fleets. And now we have. I don't know if we still have one of the oldest fleets, but at one time we did. But anyway, getting back to that original story where we got rid of the DC-9s and this company ended up uh, buying all these airplanes and forming their own airline and basically showing up in our backyard and competing directly against us with very low fares. And Acme learned a big lesson from that uh, that, that uh, incident of, um, you know, when you... When you retire a fleet, make sure that the people that are buying your airplanes are going to use them, are going to use them for like a freight operation, or if not, then gun dis running, destroy, destroy the airplanes, <laughs> literally, just like dismantle sure. them and just completely yeah. make them beer cans or whatever. Uh, because so you're, you're not going to get beat up by somebody um, buying your, you know, your surplus airplanes or your old airplanes. Anyway, um, so this airline that, uh, formed was called air no not air trend um value jet and value jet again just very frustrated to no end acme airlines 
especially in Atlanta. And um, they uh, their call sign was... Critter. Critter. Thank you. <laughs> call sign was Critter. And then we all know about the infamous crash of the value jet mm-hmm. DC-9 in South Florida with the um, oxygen generators that uh, caught on fire and then mm-hmm. in the cargo hold and it was a big mess and the airplane uh, went down killing everybody on board. So that airline um, basically went under but kind of re-emerged as AirTran Airlines and their call sign was Citrus. And they're no longer with us anymore as uh, uh, Southwest ended up buying AirTran several years back. But anyway, when, when AirTran was operating and they're using the Citrus call sign, uh, there was a instance where uh, one airliner was told to give way to uh, the AirTran DC-9. And I have a feeling it was probably Acme Airlines, uh, the pilot of a flight that was told to give way said, okay, we'll go ahead and give way to the critter. And there, you know, that was not their call sign. Uh, Citrus was the call sign. And um, so it was not really kind of a funny thing, but it was funny, the reaction of the AirTran pilot, because that AirTran pilot took a lot of offense to that statement. We're not, we're not critter airline bubble. I mean, and just like, I don't know, ranted and raved on the, on the uh, frequency for some time because he was, upset about the fact that the guy was kind of pimping him a little bit um, when you do your flight training in a somewhat more rural part of the country um, uh, air traffic uh, frequent or uh, frequencies frequently get clogged up with people who happen to know each other and while they're out flying uh, doing their own thing end up having a little bit of a conversation um, just you know catching up hey Bob hey Jim how's it going <laughs> Good to talk to you. Where are you going today? And you're like, okay, I like really, I just want to make my radio call here to let, you know, traffic know that I'm entering the pattern and I'd like to land. Um, so that kind of stuff happens. And often those are pretty entertaining conversations. Um, and I have straight up heard um, some anonymous pilots um, ask a air traffic controller for their phone number. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, just to hey, kind of hey, hey, can I get your phone turn number? the tables? <laughs> It, no, no. This was more like uh, it, the, the particular air traffic controller had a very uh, soothing, pleasing voice. And, oh, uh, that kind of. Oh. Yes, it was definitely along those lines and not like to set up a date or something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. OK. Um, my fate, there's there's one uh, controller um, at one of the local airports that I fly out of who has kind of a sing songy voice. So it's always Cessna and uh, uh He's very dramatic. Sometimes there was a uh, there were birds uh, in the vicinity of the field, and they had congregated on short final, basically. Um, so uh, a landing aircraft gave a heads up: "Hey, there was a huge flock of birds on final." Um, so as we were coming in behind them, he said, uh, "Cessna, be advised: giant flock of birds on final." <laughs> <laughs> like just really loud and dramatic um and he wasn't they weren't kidding it was a lot of birds yeah uh, you know so it was appropriate but those kinds of things crack me up would have been great to hear like some kind of movie music sound effects oh yeah it def- definitely needed it <laughs> definitely needed it so. nick you you've probably said some funny things on the radio I, yeah i i don't know <laughs> I, I guess i might have done i've probably um yeah but i i find my my little quips 
are usually so short and short-lived that uh, no one ever remembers them. So mm -hmm. they, they often get a chuckle. But And sadly, I've been racking my brain since uh, I got this, mm -hmm. thinking, uh, do I really know? There's been plenty of jokes about the fact that uh, our call sign was virgin. Uh, follow the virgin, uh, follow the big virgin, follow mm -hmm. the fat virgin. Um, but uh, none of them terribly, terribly amusing. Uh, but I tell you what, if I do remember one before the end of the show, I will come back to you. Okay, very good. Well, thank you very much, Peter, for asking the question and sharing the story about Pan Am, world's most experienced airline. All right, um, item six from Edward. He says, as always, and as commonly noted, thank you for the three plus hours we can spend together during the wonders of commuting to and fro from the office. I truly enjoy every minute of every podcast. I believe there is no doubt I have the syndrome. Oh, speaking of reet, reet, reet. Okay. During the AOPA fly-in to Livermore earlier this year, I had the great privilege to volunteer for the event. And with that, get a front row seat to the stole competition, the uh, short takeoff and landing competition. With that said, a front row seat to see Draco perform. What a machine. And with that, what sad news to hear Mike crashed her. And then he has a link to the YouTube video uh, where Mike, uh, there's some video of the actual crash of Draco taking off from Reno, I believe. And uh, also um, Mike uh, talking about the, uh, the incident. Uh, what I enjoyed from this video is that he highlighted a very important part of fly, of uh, not only piloting, but in life, decision-making. Don't be stupid. Know your limits. Some photos from the AOPA fly-in, and then he has a link to that. Uh, so, um, so I have um, some good news when I was reading this from Edward. Uh, not very long ago, maybe maybe a week ago, maybe maybe uh, less than that, I, um, I do... Um, kind of follow Mike. I think it's Patey, uh, the mm -hmm. guy that's the pilot for Draco, and uh, and it, it was very um, encouraging. And um, I it was it, I, I'm not sure I'm using the right word, but to hear him after that crash, kind of just flat out say, "Hey, look, I screwed up, and this is what I did wrong," and that was a perfect example. And we've talked about it on the show already today about how it's important to talk about your mistakes and help other people learn from your mistakes. And uh, that, that video was that. And he was very, um, uh, again. He was very upfront, forthcoming. You mm -hmm. know, he didn't try and pass off blame to yeah. anyone else for what happened. Exactly. He wasn't trying kind to blame it on something. Yes, yeah. very refreshing. Anyway, the good news is that I happen to see in my YouTube feed, um, yes, inspiring, Liz suggests to me, um, Draco, and I have a screenshot of this video, and I'll put this um, this video in, in the show notes, but it's, it's kind of like a teaser video, and it's called Draco X, or Draco 10, perhaps, and um, the uh, it says, more power, more range, more speed, more climb, more wing, more payload, lower drag, better suspension, shorter takeoff, shorter landing. So guess what? Draco lives or will live again uh, soon. So yeah, Mike is not going to let this 
this uh, accident um, affect uh, his his uh, desire to have an amazing <laughs> STOL airplane? No. So I'm excited to um, to uh, to see where what he does in the future. Um, part of the that video shows the pieces of Draco in a in a trailer, and mm-hmm. uh, you know what he salvaged from the uh, accident. And he was probably thinking, you know, most of the airplanes still here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just gotta put it back together. He right? is an amazing person, an amazing talent yeah. as far as a pilot. He's amazing talent as a uh, a builder of things like airplanes. And uh, so I am sure it won't be long before we see uh, Draco X or Draco 10 out there uh, flying. So I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, this is uh, from Ed. Uh, I always said Edward, but Ed Juiced uh, from Livermore, California, fellow syndrome sufferer. sufferer. Uh, he also sent in something that we, that's been passed around and has been existing on the internet for many, 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 many years. And we've talked about it on, a, on the show a few times uh, where we, um, uh, there's a, uh, what would you call it? Um, some, like a meme almost of um, apparently logbook write-ups or gripe sheets. Uh, this mm-hmm. one saying after every flight, Qantas pilots fill out a form known as a gripe sheet, blah, blah, blah. I think when we were doing some research on this, it actually stemmed from um, a military uh an old, I don't know, post-World yeah, War II. Yeah, I think, I think it's been, um, it's gone through several iterations of which airline it comes from. Or right. you know, the jokes have stayed the same, but yes. apply your favorite airline mm-hmm. and uh, so, enjoy the jokes. So instead of just completely blowing it off, uh, thank you, Ed, for, for sending it to us. Um, and as I said, we've covered on the show before, but why don't each of us pick out one of their favorite sure. uh, write-ups and what the, uh, the write, what the write-up is and what the solution um, is for the write-up. Number three, engine missing. Engine found on right wing after brief search. <laughs> I enjoy uh, suspect crack in windshield. Solution, suspect you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I like noise coming from under instrument panel. Sounds like a midget pounding on something with a hammer. The solution, took hammer away from the midget. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, uh, speaking of funny, um, I'm, I'm seeing something kind of funny looking in the video feed. And it uh, looks like our co-host Dana has has made it on the show. And you're looking. No, you're giving me the cutoff. Okay, you're not ready. What? I don't know. He's pointing funny at... Funny looking is the oh, person... Oh, he's pointing Nick. at Nick as being funny looking. No, no. I don't know. I, I... Julie. Oh. She's, she's in the background talking. I'm telling her to... Oh, okay. So I, I thought you were trying to communicate with me, and I wasn't understanding what you were trying to convey yeah, to me. Okay, not quite that. Hello, Dana. Uh, hello. How's it going? Sorry, I'm so late. Hey, no problem. No, I'm glad you were able to make it. Yeah, it was uh, <clears throat> a uh, it was a dodge the uh, cars broken down crashes and uh, broken eighteen wheelers blocking entire bridges and mm. all types of stuff to get here. It was crazy. Oh, and oh, in a, a frontal uh, boundary that came across <laughs> that we had to go through. Uh, and even on the highway, I had to slow down to a crawl because I couldn't see more than mm. about 10 feet in front of me. Yeah, it I got to fly through that. to me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's getting close. It, it was yeah. much worse on my radar than what you just displayed. Mm. So yeah. I know you're very close to the end of the show, but I just want to pop in and sh- to, you know show my beautiful yabba dabba doo. 
Flint, Fred Flintstone. <laughs> oh, that's what, who you are. That's uh, a, a, a wonderful Yeah, I just, I just thought Will you put on I... your flying uniform. I'm sorry, mate. Uh, what I look like normally. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. I, I thought you looked like a rock star when I saw that wig. You didn't that know you it was Flintstones? <gasps> no. 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 I, I didn't get that. See? Sorry. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's... Well, I'm done sometimes. Sorry. Aha. Uh-huh. Excellent. Very good, man. It looks and, great. I know you guys are very close to the end of the show. So no, we're not I'll that close, man. Not we're, that close. We still have a, like an hour and 20 minutes. Really? Yeah. You got that late of a start, huh? Yeah. Well, we started I, at like, what, 3.20? Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. A little after okay. 3. Yeah. Well, then press on. Well, why don't we, uh, anybody want to say anything else about Ed's feedback? Um, I think we, well, I don't know. I think we covered it. Covered that well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, Ed, for, for that. And uh, let's go revisit the first item in the feedback uh, from Louie. Um, Dana, he was asking about the, um, the flight school in Colorado called Rocky Mountain Flight School and, uh, yes. and wanted to know if anyone had any advice or contacts in this neck of the woods or any better ideas. Yeah, and, uh, you know... Um, my thought process on that, there are other options. I, I don't know that I would go to a small school like that. Um, it, it depends on how fast, Louie, you're, you're looking um, to uh, come over over here and build your time. But there are much faster programs that are very familiar with um, with bringing people like yourself, uh, you know, on non-American citizens over here uh, for training. And one of them I can think of right off the top of my head is all ATPs. I'm not going to use, you know, I'm not going to try to plug them, but there are schools just like that, uh, that you can come over and, and build time rapidly and fairly inexpensively, especially if you're, and I forget, was he looking to build time or, or get additional ratings? I don't, I don't know. Well, I kind of came in the middle of it. He did not, he, he did not mention exactly what his ratings were. He just had, um, finished his ATPL exams, all 14 of them or whatever they are over uh, um, in the UK, I'm assuming is where he, yeah, UK pilot. So, um, but I, I would have to assume that he's probably has the equivalent of like a commercial um, rating, I would think, Steph, would you think? I don't know. He uh, has Nick a... can probably answer that better. Mm-hmm. I think if you've set for all of your ATPL exams, I don't know what the check ride requirements are, but. Well, the uh, you can you can do the ground school and sit the exams, but you don't get a Take license until you've done the hours. So gotcha. uh, he's probably got what we would call a frozen ATPL. Mm-hmm. Those exams will stay valid uh, for a certain period, but he has to build up his hours in the meantime. Okay. And and I and I'm reading here specifically in a second uh, um, paragraph. It says I would very much like to travel the U.S. to our build cost effectively so i think he's looking just to fly airplanes um and if that's the case then that you know maybe that would be a good option but i would certainly search around to see um aircraft availability what type of aircraft they have instructors available for checkout uh and when i say aircraft availability i mean bookability there's some flight schools that are just so busy that you can come on over here and, and want to rent an airplane for a week or two at a time if you if that's what you're looking to do is just take a block of time and build time. And, and, and Louie, you also have to have, being that you're a foreign national, uh, you're going to need to go through some, and I don't remember the specifics, the, the flight school would be able to help you out better with that. Um, but being that you're a foreign national, be able to rent an aircraft in the United States, you have to go through certain uh, background checks or uh, certifications uh, for security 
security reasons now because of what happened September 11th. So, uh, you know, if you want to do that, uh, I, I also would recommend as far as uh, time of the year, you know, that's another thing you need to look at. You want to go to the Rocky Mountains in, the, in, in December and in January and February? I don't think so. Uh, maybe Florida would be a better option or Arizona. And a lot of those places like Florida and Arizona have uh, flight schools that really specifically kind of cater to people like yourself as well. So those are some of the things that I was thinking about when when, when I read your uh, your feedback. And I just wanted to share those with you because, um, you know, I, I think there are better, maybe may be better options out there other than being, you know, next to the Rocky Mountains, which obviously are beautiful to fly around. I mean, it would be, I mean, it's a cool place to to be and live for a, a period of time, but yeah, the, very expensive the, too. The, yeah. The, and the weather situation out there is definitely something that you have to consider because your suggestions are there. The reason why there are a lot of flight schools in Florida and Arizona is because great weather for that purpose, I think better, much, much better weather. So those are, those, those are the things I want to share. And, mm-hmm. um, I think, uh, I think that's pretty much all I had to say on that, but okay. I, I hope that helps them out. I'm sure it will, and I'm sure that uh, our great community uh, will, if they have something to add and help Louie out, uh, they'll they'll certainly get back to us on that, and we'll talk about it on um, succeeding shows. There's also something you're talking about, and I think it was number three, was it number three, real quick, just not mm-hmm. to hit back uh, on uh, safety, uh, mistakes we've made. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I actually had Julie text you, um, real quick was the cheat, you know, the uh, Swiss cheese model uh-huh. and, uh, did I, I, my, I lost my signal right about then. Did you guys talk about that at all? As far as trying to mitigate, uh, any, any threats and what the Swiss cheese model is and, and no, how we that talked about it so many times on the show. So no, we didn't, <laughs> we did not talk about it this time around. All right. Yeah. I'm not going to, okay. okay. I'm, it's, uh, I'm just asking a question. Yeah. I came in late. I'm sorry. I'll shut up. No Maybe. problem. No problem. All right. Well, you're you're back in, and uh, we are now moving on to uh, let's see, seven, I believe, is uh, where we left off. Um, Nick sent not Nick Anderson, but an, another Nick sent us some feedback, some audio feedback, and let's hear what he has to say. Hey guys, this is Nick, originally from Columbus, Ohio, currently in Southwest Texas through the end of this year finishing up Air Force pilot training, and uh, recently had the opportunity to take some leave and go back to Ohio to visit family for Columbus Day weekend. And when I was leaving Ohio, a thought crossed my mind, and uh, it was something that I was hoping maybe you guys wouldn't mind discussing on the show. Uh, I got to admit, I am currently six episodes behind. I used to be really good about listening to them every single week when I was uh, commuting to and from my uh, civilian job there in Columbus, Ohio. But uh, been a little busy the last nine or 10 months uh, studying and flying and pilot training, Jeff, I'm sure. And, and Nick, you guys know how busy that can be. So uh, yeah, I'm six episodes behind right now. But uh, And if this is something that you've already answered, then throw it away and I will find out about it eventually. But anyways, my question to you guys I know, Jeff, you've mentioned in the past that you like to talk to the flight attendants when you get on the aircraft to sort of set the tone for the flight and and just get to know them. And I was wondering what, if any, guidance your company has, what protocol there is, or even just what your own personal technique or view, if you will, is as to whether or not the 
cabin crew should uh, contact you during critical phases of flight. And the big one specifically that I was thinking about as we were taxiing out to the runway, you know, the thought occurred to me, you guys in the, uh, in the flight deck obviously are monitoring all of your uh, systems and, you know, you have your, your V1 call and then rotate and, and after V1, you know, you're going airborne and you'll deal with any malfunction in the air and then come back to try and land. But I was curious what your, uh, what your, I guess, action would be if there is any sort of malfunction or emergency outside of the flight deck that the uh, cabin crew is aware of during that critical phase of flight, specifically the takeoff, and whether or not they are you know, allowed to or if you ask them to contact you or if it's just simply a matter of uh, you'll deal with it once you're airborne and things have settled down a little bit. Uh, because obviously you guys in the flight deck, you know, you can see your engine instruments and and the electrical system and things like that. But I was just thinking, you know, if there is a, a fire in the galley or something like that, how you deal with that. And if there was any specific guidance from the company, if that's something that you talk about with the flight attendants. Uh, so, yeah, looking forward to hearing what you guys say. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right. Thank you, Nick. Uh, great question, by the way. And. Um, I guess we we'll start off by saying that uh, our company and I think most airline companies out there do encourage their uh, cockpit crews and cabin crews to communicate with each other effectively. And it's all part of, you know, this thing that we've been talking about for so many years, uh, crew resource management. And uh, it is important to have a sterile flight deck policy. However, uh, I think it's mainly up, up to the captain to convey to the cabin crew, I'm not sure what kind of guidance they get in their training, but uh, just because we are in that period of the flight where sterile flight deck uh, rules are in effect, it doesn't mean that we you cannot communicate with us because that may mean the difference between you know uh, a bad outcome and a good outcome. And so I think I think yeah. people hear that sterile flight rule and they think that no communication happens, right? But it's only it's it's that it's essential to safe operation. Right. We don't want to hear right. like, oh, it's you know, it's can you can you kind of heat it up in the back a little bit or, you know, that kind of thing. That's that's not a critical thing that we need to know during those critical phases of flight. But if smoke is pouring out of the uh, air vents or the engine on the right side on the right wing is like, you know, exploding or there's fireballs coming from it. That's something we want to hear about. <laughs> you know, it's it's not something, you know, we don't have a, a gauge in the cockpit that says uh, you're, you know, the, the the cabin is filling with smoke. Um, you know, somebody needs to tell us that and unless the cockpit's getting filled with smoke as well. So um, effective communication, it's important to basically uh, let your uh, cabin crew know that we can't see everything. We can't know everything that's happening. And it's very important for you to tell us. And, uh, but it's just the non-essential stuff. Like we're, Hey, we have a write up because the reading light in, uh, over, you know, seat three a is broken. Well, okay. That's something you can tell us when we're in cruise flight or something, you know, in a, not a critical phase of flight. 
I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the most important thing is 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 that we do have a a standard policy within the company, and certainly certain a standard policy within the industry uh, here in the you know U.S. I don't know. I think Nick would be able to answer this. Whether it's sterile cockpit, I think you've answered this before. It applies everywhere outside the U.S. I don't think it does. But uh, anyways, for us, yeah, exactly correct. It's safety. So, and that's part of our briefing. That's what we talk about in the briefing. You know, this, you, you feel free to call us if you see something, hear something, or something that's, you know, disastrous that's happening. You know, we, we don't know everything in the flight deck. So, but I just re- was reminded of something that happened. I've talked about it at least two or three times on the show over those, these past 10 years where uh, we were on the 727 and we were taxiing out at Nassau, Bahamas, and we get uh, one of the flight attendants calls us as so we were in that sterile flight deck phase of flight, and she says, "Yeah, there's a passenger out here back here," and you know she was kind of sounded skeptical. Uh, he thinks that there's something wrong on the right side of the airplane. There's something sticking up back here, and he was back toward the the tail of the airplane, you know, uh, after the wing and uh, uh, forward of the tail, and and we were going like we all kind of rolled our eyes, okay, because we looked at all our enunciator lights and nothing was amiss. And so, you know, and I, as I said, if you've heard this before, I do apologize, but the captain said to the flight engineer, would you go back there and just, you know, appease the uh, passenger to show him that we are concerned about his concerns. And, and then we, you know, he called us from the back and said, oh yeah, uh, the cabin, the, uh, co- the, uh, the cargo door in the back is, is wide open. <laughs> so the concern of this passenger was valid and we didn't have any uh, um, any indication in the in the cockpit that this was in, indeed the, the the situation. So, uh, the, I try to relate that story to flight attendants saying, "Hey, if something's going on, if something is making a noise that you're not used to hearing, or what, don't assume that we know it. Uh, that it's very important that you tell us." And there there have been major accidents. Uh, one was it a British Midlands uh, flight, uh, Nick, that crashed a seven thirty seven that. Um, there was a lack of communication from, or ineffective communication from the cabin crew to the cockpit, and they made That's some assumptions. That's exactly right, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, the cabin crew had, had identified an engine that uh, was on fire, and the flight crew got it the wrong way around and shut down the wrong engine. Mm. Uh, they shut down the good engine. The engine on fire eventually failed, and they had an awful crash uh, about half a mile, mile short of the runway in the middle of a motorway on an embankment. It was just dreadful. Yeah. And that's just one instance of uh, some very bad outcomes because of ineffective communication and making assumptions. And so, I, you know, and, and it's all part of, you know, setting the tone, as uh, Nick mentioned. And Dana and I and Nick uh, talk about that all the time and, and even Steph in her line of work. Setting the tone is important and being open, you know, to effective communication is, is critical, I think. Um, and just well, to yeah, get we're, yeah. we're lucky. We get to do a lot of training with our crabbing crew. I don't know if that's quite the same in, in uh, your world, but when we go to our, uh, our sessions uh, in the base and do our CRM and our safety equipment procedures, we combine a lot of our classroom work with the cabin crew, uh, and we do combined exercise with them. And we have frank discussions on various subjects, and this is one that often comes up because um, the cabin crew don't have that confident sometimes that uh, what they're going to say to us is important enough to break into a critical situation. One of the reasons why there is a 
a flow of information on our aircraft, which is means the junior cabin crew pass a problem on to the, the most senior cabin crew. She decides whether it's important enough to uh, break into the cockpit uh, communication sort of chain and, uh, and let us know. Uh, which is great because they're usually the, the people who would understand the difference, uh, which I think is also. And I'm also a great fan of uh, having combined training so uh, we, that we can hear their niggles about what we do that really annoys them and uh, vice versa. Sadly, now when we started our cockpit resource management program at ACME many years ago, and we were one of the first in the industry to do it, um, the we we had and that this was back in the days and this is part probably part of the problem uh when we would actually go and have a couple of days of ground school in classroom and discussing various things with ground instructors dana used to be one of those people that would conduct those uh that training and we also had a time where we were together with the flight attendants and went through various scenarios and uh worked together and it was a great eye-opening thing uh, from both sides of the cockpit door you know we made certain assumptions about what they were doing and thinking in the back and they made assumptions about what we were doing and thinking it was a great thing and unfortunately as time went on uh, i guess that just got to be kind of expensive in the way we do our training now it's very streamlined it's a lot of self-study and we don't have the ground school classes thing anymore the only thing that we really go to do is to get inside of a, a, a simulator and do the pre-brief and the briefings after mm. that. And, and, and that's I, a shame because you miss out on that, uh, that interaction, that yes. personal interaction and the feedback and yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, and, 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 and truth be told, Jeff, it, exactly correct. We used to do, uh, you know, the ground school portion was actually 12 days long and we would coordinate with the, the in-flight folks. And a lot of times we did the evacuation um, maneuvers with them together and uh, especially the, the pool work and, and what it's like to evacuate into the water mm -hmm. and you know get people on the raft and how how complex of an operation that actually can be and then you know we'd pull the slides and and jump down the slides together and there's a lot of communication that it has gone by the wayside i mean it's to the point now that they you know you just came back from flying uh, out to um El Paso and back. I mean, that's almost, you know, two and a half hours in the flight deck of flying time, a little over actually two and a half hours, both ways. Did we hear from flight attendants once? Not even once. They don't even call and check on you anymore. I mean, so I don't know about the long haul people. I don't know, you know, Transcon, but I can assure you on the 88, it's it, it, it in the 90, it's far less common for them to call up into the flight deck because a lot of that camaraderie because of the lack of team building anymore. I mean, when we really would, we spend on average one or two legs with most of our in-flight crew. And, you know, a lot of times they're getting off the aircraft and they're, as, as they're saying goodbye, oh, by the way, I'm so-and-so, mm -hmm. right? As they're walking off the aircraft, you haven't even met them. Now, and, I, so, and I'm talking, when I was talking about Dana, is not just the initial training kind of stuff, but on an airplane, but um, the actual recurrent training. You know, we go in now, a recurrent training is a full two days, or not even a full two days two half days basically for us now and it used yeah. to be three or four days long and one of those days or one of those afternoons at least one of the half days was spent with uh with the cabin crew and uh yeah, going through various scenarios true. and that kind of thing 
And that's all gone. In in my uh, opinion, it's partly uh, because our companies are more often being run by bean counters yep. than by uh, pilots. And the other thing is our regulators uh, are no longer applying those um, distinct rules uh, that we would have to abide by. And now that they're, they're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, computer-aided uh, training is perfectly acceptable, blah, blah, blah. And I think uh, overall, as an industry, we're, we're losing the plot with this. We yep. need to get back, even if it costs a little more and takes a little more time, uh, to building uh, those kind of relationships with the whole crew and not just the flight deck. Right. Absolutely. I think we all agree. Okay. 100%. All right. Well, I think now it would be a good time for us to do this week's installment of the old pilot's plane tales. And Yay. Spy tales. This week. Like yeah. Bond. James Bond. <laughs> the old pilot's plane tales. The MiG 007. It's February 1956, and there's a new kid on the block. His NATO name is Fishbed, and he comes from the Mikoyan Gurevich Design Bureau of the Soviet Union, who call him the MiG-21. This triumph for the Soviet Union was to become the most produced supersonic jet aircraft in aviation history, and the most produced combat aircraft since the Korean War. A Mach 2 capable fighter, it was the most successful of a series of supersonic fighters that the Soviets produced, such as the Sukhoi Su-7 Fitter and the Sukhoi Su-9 Fishpot. It had a distinctive, highly swept delta wing platform and a central intake with a pointed shock cone in the nose for the single Termansky R-25 afterburning turbojet, giving it the capability of achieving Mach 2.05 at high level, as well as over 600 knots at medium level. Armed with a 23mm cannon carrying 200 rounds and, initially, the K-5 alkali beam-riding missile, it would soon be replaced by the K-55 semi-active radar-guided homing missile. It also had a pair of K-13 Atoll infrared homing air-to-air missiles, which was a reverse-engineered copy of the American Sidewinder missile. The story of how the latest top-secret American Sidewinder ended up in Soviet hands is worthy of a little side note. In 1958, the People's Republic of China, on the Chinese mainland, were having a little crisis with the Republic of China on the island of Taiwan, and there was a fair bit of military activity in the Taiwan Straits that separate them. President Eisenhower responded to a request from the Taiwan government for assistance by deploying, amongst other things, aircraft to Taiwan. Under a secret effort called Operation Black Magic, the U.S. Navy rapidly modified some of the nationalist Chinese Air Force F-86 Super Sabres 
to carry the new AIM-9 Sidewinder missiles, which would give them a distinct edge over the Soviet-made MiG-15s and MiG-17s that the PRC Chinese flew. The world was about to see the very first use of guided missiles in air-to-air combat. On the 24th of September 1958, a group of MiG-17s cruised past some sabres, only to find themselves under missile attack. There was an inconclusive end to this engagement, but only a few days later, 32 sabres clashed with over a 100 MiGs in a series of engagements, and around nine of the MiGs were shot down, the first missile kills to be scored in combat. A byproduct of this engagement was that one of the American Sidewinder missiles became lodged in the rear fuselage of a MiG-17 without the warhead detonating. The aircraft successfully returned to its base and the Chinese were able to extract the missile intact. They forwarded it to the Russians and a Soviet design team led by Ivan Tolopov carefully dismantled it. The Soviets were impressed by the simplicity and effectiveness of the Sidewinder and made their own version that would eventually end up on the wing of the MiG-21. This wasn't the last Sidewinder that they got hold of, but that, as they say, is another story. The new MiG-21 had Western Air Forces worried. They didn't know much about this new fighter, but it was rumoured to be highly manoeuvrable and well-armed in addition to being fast. Indeed, lightly loaded, it could achieve a climb rate of over 45,000 feet a minute. Intelligence agencies' lights burned through many a night as analysts pored over grainy photographs in an attempt to discover the fighter's capabilities. Then came the Vietnam War, and American forces were going to find out firsthand how the aircraft performed. In December 1966, the MiG-21 pilots of the 921st Fighter Regiment downed 14 F-105 Thunder Chiefs without loss. Something needed to be done. In fact, something was being done. The year before, in Israel, a plan was being hatched. The Israeli Air Force was already deeply concerned about the MiG-21, which had recently appeared in the Egyptian order of battle when the Soviets let them have 34 aircraft. In addition, Syria had 18 and Iraq 10. At that time, the United States was refusing to supply the Israelis with any arms, so they had looked towards the United Kingdom and France to provide them with equipment. The French sold them voitures, super mystères, and 72 of the excellent Mirage III fighters. But with the Soviets arming the Arabs with their latest fighters, the Israelis were still very concerned. The Israeli Air Force commander, Isa Weissman, approached Mia Amit, the head of Mossad, to discuss the subject. Weissman, who had led the IAF since 1958, recalled the defection to Israel of an Egyptian pilot, Mahmoud Abbas Hilmi, 
who unexpectedly landed with a Czech-built Yak training aircraft on one of the IAF's bases. However, the MiG-21 was a much more sophisticated aircraft than the Yak, and Weissman knew that the Arab Air Forces were tightly safeguarding its secrets. Despite this, Weissman asked Amit if it would be possible to get him a MiG-21. Israel had already tried to put its hands on MiG aircraft and their wealth of technological secrets in the late 1950s, but to no avail. With the arrival of this new advanced Soviet fighter, the situation had become more urgent. Although Amit's first reaction was that this was truly a mission impossible, he promised Weissman that his people would do what they could. Rehavi Avadi, who led Mossad's spy department, or more correctly, Humint, or Human Intelligence, was appointed to look at the task and command a highly dangerous attempt called Operation Diamond. Initially, Mossad tried an operation in Egypt, led by their agent Jean Thomas. The team tried to pay an Egyptian fighter pilot $1 million to steal a plane and fly it to Israel. The plan, however, backfired when the pilot reported Thomas to the Egyptian authorities, resulting in his arrest and subsequent hanging, along with two others. The second attempt took place in Iraq and failed when Mossad operatives were forced to assassinate two Iraqi pilots to silence them after they refused to cooperate. The third attempt came about when the Mossad office chief in Tehran said that he knew of a Jewish Iraqi businessman called Yusef Shamash, who, although much disliked by Mossad, was willing to play a vital role in the operation. Yusef was an entirely unpleasant person. People cringed from him and thought him a greedy and boastful man who wouldn't recoil from any deed for enough money. The pieces started to fall into place when it was discovered that Yusuf's lover was an Iraqi girl who just happened to be the sister-in-law of an Iraqi Air Force pilot called Munia Redfa. Redfa was an Assyrian Christian who was frustrated at his lack of progress within the Iraqi military because of his Christian roots. He suffered from religious and ethnic discrimination, had been passed over for promotion, and was being forced by his commanders to live far away from his family in Baghdad. In addition, Redfo was feeling remorse for his part in the bombing of Iraqi Kurdish villages. Unlike many human assets, Redfo wasn't too interested in money, but wanted a better future for himself and his family. A Mossad agent who had served as an IAF pilot started periodically meeting Redfa in various European capitals to establish his bona fide, and it was agreed that the pilot was not only genuine but willing to defect with a MiG-21 so long as his family could escape as well. Redfa put in an application to fly the new MiG fighters, and in the meantime he was secretly brought to Israel so that he could see the Hatzor Air Force Base where he would land. The risks were explained to him. You know how dangerous this is going to be. The flight is 900 kilometres. If your own colleagues guess what you're up to, they may send planes to blow you out of the sky.' 
If they don't succeed, the Jordanians may try. Your only hope is to remain calm and follow this route. They do not know it, we do. If you lose your nerve, you're a dead man. Once you've left your ordinary flight path, there's no turning back. Ritva seemed to understand and simply said, I will bring you the plane. He was even taken up in a Mirage 3 to practice landing at the base. In addition, he was trained in the different ways of encoding letters and other methods of spycraft that he would need to use. In due course, Mossad received a letter. I have asked for a transfer from the hospital, code word for the Kirkuk Air Base in northern Iraq, which I currently attend to the internal ward, meaning Rashid Air Base near Baghdad, and they have approved it, but the transfer will be executed in July. In the same month, I will bring the penicillin, meaning MiG-21, from the pharmacy. The operation was on. Some of Redford's family, still unaware of the plan that they were involved in, were sent to Europe as a staging post, before being rehomed in Israel, and when all the preparations were complete, at a prearranged time, the Israeli Arabic language station played a song. Mahabtain, Mahabtain. It was a welcome greeting in Arabic and the sign to Redfa that Israel was expecting him. Awaiting the arrival of the MiG-21 was Ran Pekka, one of the most decorated IAF fighter pilots and the commander of a Mirage squadron. He was one of two Mirages on alert for an event they had yet to be told about. For many hours he sat in his cramped cockpit until, unexpectedly, he was stood down, only to be put back on alert the next day and then the next. He was bored and frustrated, but completely unaware that Redford's first attempt to defect had been ruined when he had to turn back with an unexpected fault. It must have been ghastly for the Iraqi pilot, but eventually, two days later, on August the 16th, 1966, Redford again got the chance to fly. When the moment was right, he unexpectedly turned hard westwards. Ignoring his Iraqi controller's radio calls, he dived to low level and set off over Iraq and Jordan, heading for Israel. For a nerve-wracking hour, he kept calm, and with his fuel gauges getting lower and lower, he eventually found himself approaching the border. In his Mirage cockpit, Ran Pecker's long wait was over. He was scrambled and told to prepare for combat, but at the same time to hold his fire unless instructed. The two Mirages launched and headed out to intercept their target. As they closed on the aircraft, they were amazed to discover that it was a MiG-21. With no direct radio contact, Ran used hand signals to direct the MiG to follow him to Hatzor Air Force Base and land, which it did, desperately short of fuel. That same day, Mossad agents hired two large vans and picked up the remaining members of the pilot's family who had left Baghdad ostensibly to have a picnic. 
They were driven to the Iranian border and guided across by anti-Iraqi Kurdish guerrillas. Safely in Iran, a helicopter collected them and flew them to an airfield from which a passenger plane took them to Israel. The next day, to an astonished world press, the defection of the Iraqi pilot with his MiG was announced. The Russians were furious. The secrets of their new fighter were out, and they ferociously threatened the Israelis, demanding their aircraft back. Instead, the IAF flew the MiG in training missions against their mirages so they could evaluate the MiG and its systems. The IAF's chief test pilot, Danny Shapira, undertook mock dogfights and he reached the conclusion that the MiG-21's legendary reputation was not entirely correct. The rear part of the MiG-21 was its Achilles heel due to its design which placed the aircraft's fuel tank with compressed air and oxygen tanks together making a vulnerable cluster of systems. They also realised that the Mirage was a much more sophisticated and effective weapons system than the Russian MiG, which had limited visibility from the cockpit, control difficulties at high speed, plus an unorganised and cluttered cockpit. It also had poor manoeuvrability at low speeds. However, with every passing day, they were more and more surprised at its high usability levels. It reminded them of a reliable Volkswagen car. Other countries were eager to get their hands on the aircraft, and eventually the Prime Minister agreed to let the Americans take a look, and it was duly shipped to Area 51 as part of Project Have Donut. Shortly after, the IAF were allowed to purchase F-4 Phantom. The United States designated the aircraft the YF-110, and the CIA, Foreign Technology Division, AFFTC, SAC, NATC, TAC, NASIC, and a host of others wanted to play. In the end, 102 flights were conducted against Phantoms, Thunder Chiefs, F-111s, F-100s, F-104s, and F-5s, just to name a few. The MiG turned out to be amazingly reliable, and only 11 sorties were lost due to its problems. The US jets didn't come even close to that. The main deficiency in the MiG turned out to be poor visibility, very slow engine response, low altitude transonic vibration, difficulty with formation flying, flying in turbulence and night flying. In addition, it was expected to be easy to kill due to non-sealing tanks, an unprotected engine, and a very light metal structure. What's more, its radar was very easily decoyed. On the other hand, it required very little maintenance. It had an HG load factor, required no stability augmentation, and was hard to keep sight of. Against the F-4, for example, it had less acceleration below 30,000 feet, particularly in military power, and its airspeed bled off quickly when turning hard below 15,000 feet. So, whilst the MiG had better instantaneous turn rates, if the engagement was kept low, the F-4 could prevail in a sustained fight. All the questions about this new fighter had been answered, and when disseminated to the pilots who were going to fight it, 
it gave them an enormous advantage. During the air battles over the Golan Heights in 1967, the IAF Mirages took down six Syrian MiG-21s without loss, and in the Six-Day War, the IAF destroyed a total of 148 MiG-21s, many in air combat. When Redford's MiG-21 was returned to Israel, it was given the serial number 007 and served with the IAF before being retired to the Israeli Air Force Museum in Hatzelim, where it can still be seen. Very interesting. Zero zero seven. Very clever. Yeah, quite a uh, quite a, a bit of Cold War intrigue. Yeah, there, I thought that was that was a great story. The Israelis, uh, though certainly Mossad, were ruthless uh, but cunning, and they certainly knew how to uh, get what they wanted. I'm amazed that they managed to get hold of that uh, fighter, considering how uh, new it was and how much it was, how, how the Russians were taking care of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, my father, um, his last uh, employment uh, was uh, with Hughes Aircraft in uh, Southern California. And one of his, or his area of... Um, well, I don't know if it was expertise, but what, what he focused on or what he, his job was had something to do with the called the range systems division of Hughes aircraft. And he would go every couple of weeks on an airplane from LA to Las Vegas. And then he'd get on that, uh, what do they call it? Jane, the, uh, Oh, over to area that seven, three, seven. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, his, I mean, he couldn't really tell me exactly what they were doing because it was all confidential, top secret stuff. So I didn't know, uh, and I'm glad he didn't tell me, but uh, it had something to do with uh, using tactics that they learned from, you know, obtaining airplanes like the MiG-21 and and other things to kind of uh, help educate uh, the U.S. and other allies uh, as far as the... Yeah, absolutely. It was based on uh, their exposure to the MiG-21 that they got from the Israelis that they um, developed the aggressor squadrons. Uh, they decided that the F-5 was the closest aircraft that performed to the MiG-21. Huh. It had similar characteristics in several areas, and they thought that would be the perfect aircraft to use to train uh, uh pilots uh you know all around uh, because i i flew against the aggressor squadrons uh, uh several times uh when they were based in the uk well there was one of their squadrons based in the uk and it was incredibly valuable training and was it the uh uss i mean uss the u.s aggressor squadron that was over there in the, in the uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. it's uh it was uh the usf boys uh, okay. uh they painted all these f5s up mm-hmm. in uh, soviet markings so they looked. They looked really wacky. I didn't they know if you brilliant. guys had your own aggressor squad, squad, squad no, no, squadron. No, no, no. We uh, we went down to Alcumbri, where they were based at the time, and uh, got all the uh, really good briefings. They had uh, they had specialists on each aircraft, and uh, one of their members would come along uh, and give us a mass brief 
on uh, you know how to fight various uh, Soviet aircraft. It really mm-hmm. was fascinating stuff, uh, and I didn't know at the time how they got that information. But of course, now we're finding out that it was based on aircraft that they had acquired from various sources. One of which was uh, the Israeli aircraft. Yeah, the one that we just learned about. Absolutely, I love the fact that that aircraft eventually joined the Israeli Air Force on in their sort of uh, inventory of aircraft, mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, pilot uh, had ha- sat in it uh, many times uh, on alert, hoping that he would get a chance to use it against yeah. <laughs> against the air forces that were attacking Israel. I thought that was great. Mind you, they couldn't get spares for it, of course, so eventually they had to retire it to a museum. But, yeah. uh, I loved it. Very cool story. Thank you, Captain Nick. Oh, and of course, may I just mention that the Patreons uh, got a little extra mm-hmm. from that story because mm-hmm. there was another AIM-9 missile, not the one that uh, got lodged in a Chinese fighter, but uh, one that was stolen. And uh, I just recently uh, sent the Patreons that little story as a little extra crew log. Yes, I just listened to it myself today. It was very, very interesting. One of the benefits mm. of becoming um, one of our coffee fund cadre or coffee bar club members uh, by being a patron. Absolutely. Or... I always love taking those little bits that I can't fit into a full plane tail and yeah. uh, passing them on. Perfect use for it, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Let's move on. Try to get some more of this feedback out of the way. I was hoping to have more knocked out by, by now, but oh well. We'll keep going. What, Steph? Oh, I'm just laughing at our inability to ever move through feedback to faster it. than we... <laughs> it's like, today we're going to knock out all the feedback. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. Not no. really. Okay. Uh, item eight. I didn't skip any others, did I? I think we're on eight. No, no okay. you are correct. Um, ben uh, sent us a link oh where's ben's actual real um original huh no oh it's, it was a very short uh piece of feedback he sent us and then he gave, gave us a link uh, he said uh and this is via facebook can our in- intrepid acme air mad dog drivers explain what this means and then he gives us a link to a um uh, incident in the aviation herald and uh, this was our sister airline delta uh, McDonnell Douglas MD-90, registration 936, Delta November, performing flight 1302 from Louisville, Kentucky to Atlanta, Georgia, was climbing through about 12,000 feet out of Louisville when the crew stopped the climb and returned to Louisville, reporting that they had received an elevator split light. Aircraft was performing just fine. The aircraft landed safely on Louisville's runway 17 right about 25 minutes after departure. A replacement MD-90 was uh, sent from Atlanta and uh, picked up the passengers and reached Atlanta with a delay of four hours. Okay, so um, what does this mean? Elevator split light. And we have a an overhead enunciator panel that uh, gives us various messages like most modern airplanes do now. And um, this one, elevator split, means, and if you look in our quick response handbook, um, it indicates a left and right elevator position differs. So the Left elevator and the right elevator, they're doing different things, which is on the 90, that's not supposed to happen. And so it basically takes you through, if this happens on the ground, then they say, uh, go back to the gate, maintenance action is required. Uh, In flight, it says, caution, avoid abrupt elevator inputs, stabilizer trim may be used to relieve column forces, 
If the elevator split message is displayed during rotation or shortly after takeoff, do not exceed 225 knots. If the elevator split message is displayed above 225 knots indicated airspeed, do not exceed 270 and land at, a, at the nearest suitable airport, which is what this crew did. And uh, it says a note here, auto land will not be available, which makes sense. So it's a situation that's not supposed to occur, and it's not normal, hence the uh, abnormal or non-normal procedure. And uh, that's, that's all our quick response uh, handbook says about it. Um, now, as we all know, the DC-9 and the MD-80 series of aircraft, uh, the elevators are not linked together. And that's one of those oddball things that you notice when you, well, when I was first hired at Acme, taxiing behind a, an, a mad dog, and I'm going, uh, something's not right about that because the left elevator was down and the right elevator was up and they were just kind of flopping around in the wind. I'm thinking, every airplane that I've flown until now, um, you know, the elevators were powered by hydraulic systems and they, they were always the same left and right. And they always, or they didn't move around and weren't being blown around by the wind and all that kind of stuff. And, and the, uh, other pilots kind of chuckled a little bit and said, ah, you don't know about the, about the DC nine and the mad dog elevator, huh? And when they were telling me that, that they were uh, not powered, I'm thinking, well, that they're obviously lying to me because that's, there's no way that an airliner could have a elevator that's not powered uh, by hydraulics but it is indeed true but anyway again on the 90 this is not supposed to happen <laughs> so have you ever had this situation dana no but uh you know the qrh is 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 obviously taking the uh, most cautious route of action because if you lose control of that hydraulic power um in that elevator then obviously you have some pretty bad situations going on uh, more than likely, the scenario is the proximity switch may have malfunctioned, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, you know, as he he quoted in here, you know, there's no way in the flight deck we're going to know that, even though it's, you know, he said everything was functioning normally. Well, mm -hmm. what define normal in flight when you think you may have an elevator that's not controlling the airplane proper? So, uh, you know, obviously you have to follow the, the guidance, but I think probably more than likely there was a proximity switch failure. Yeah, that's, that is I'm, fairly, fairly common. I'm sure that's most likely what was going on there. But I yeah. think what he means is that the aircraft was performing normally is that it wasn't, you know, you would think if you actually did have a split elevator that the, there would be some kind of a rolling moment um, that you would have to counteract with uh, the ailerons because of the yeah. elevator split. So, But, I mean, was he flying the airplane? Does he know? Um, I mean, well, I, I mean... <clears throat> that's 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 my thing and that, oh. that is you know we, well, we define... i'm not gonna complain about simon he does great work out there so i'm sure that he has other information that maybe he didn't include in this and he was just reporting what he he has access to so gotcha i think that gotcha. the crew is the one that reported that they did not have any kind of abnormal thing not that simon was gotcha. was guessing so um yeah, I mean, it might be straight out of what they put in the logbook. Right. You, know, you never know. Yeah. So, but yeah, our sister airline, you know, that, that, that may have been, uh, I don't know, but uh, with our aircraft at our airline, um, you know, we, we would follow a, exactly the same procedure. Oh yeah. i tell you what, if I, uh, that, I would treat that as a very serious thing. If I saw that message, Yeah, I would definitely get the airplane on the ground. 
for sure. No question about as it. As quickly as possible. That's the, 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 the pucker factor is getting way up real quick. All right. Anything to add, uh, Nick or Steph? Just seems like a strange design. Oh, it is. I'm sure they have the rationale for <laughs> it. It's very strange. Makes for, makes for a good t-shirt opportunity, though. It does. Yeah. Save the Mad Dogs. Save the Mad Dogs. Um, let's see. Skylar writes in, uh, I've just started jumping back into the podcast after some time. I look back and I think the last time I sent feedback into the show, I had just finished my private pilot check ride back in 2016. I just wanted to thank you for your show that pushed me to work for what I knew I wanted back then. These days, I work at an Atlanta area Part 135 charter company flying Citations, the CJ, the CJ-1, and Citation 2, and have been at it for about a year now, loving every minute of it, and I can't wait to see what comes next. I'm loving the charter world, and I'm not sure I want to move out of the corporate jet space, something I'd never really considered back when I last wrote. Hope to run into you or Dana on the road one of these days. Sounds kind of violent to me. You know, we don't want to run into each other, right? Yeah, that would be uh, cause insurance issues. <laughs> Messy. Of course, anybody that runs into me generally loses because I don't move. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. If I ran into you, I'd definitely be the loser. <laughs> <laughs> um, Skylar Mor- Mor- uh, Morales. And I wasn't Skylar one of the guys that was at the um, PDK meetup, uh, one of the first ones that we did. I think Nick w- um, was there as well. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm not very good with names, but I think Skylar was one of the one of the guys that was there. And uh, that's so cool to hear about his flight progress. It Absolutely. Is. Yep. Well done. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, I don't blame you for not wanting to come and, uh, you know, sell your body to a big airline. Uh, you know, it gets very samey doing the kind of job that uh, an airline pilot does. I think in the charter world, you've got a lot more variety. You're often a lot of the time you're your own boss a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a different world, different uh, pluses and minuses. You know, each each field has. It's like compare. It's like comparing a limousine driver to a bus driver, mm-hmm. right? So, a limousine driver, you're pretty much at the at the whim of whoever is renting that limousine when they want to go where they want to go, and you're on call. You know, probably more than you would at the airline. Uh, in the bus driver in the airline, you what's the most common question that we get when when then and anybody discovers that you're a pilot, they're like, "Oh, what route do you fly?" Um, yeah, I'm not the milkman, but uh, anyways, the reality is, is we have a, a little bit more set schedule in a more predictable schedule, but we're you know we're just driving a bus around the sky is really what we're doing. You so know, that's really the difference between the, the two, number one question that a bus driver gets is, "When are we going to stop next so I can go to the bathroom?" Yeah. That sounds just like me. <laughs> That's Nick behind the scenes on, on the podcast. When are we going to stop yeah. next so I can go to the bathroom? Oh, no, <laughs> you, you wouldn't believe how many messages he sent us. No, he uh, hasn't said any. We're just kidding. In the last four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> He's carrying the rental on that beer. Yeah, so when, when can I go and get, you know, refill my or recharge gin. my gin and tonic? That's more important. That created is. a monster with the G. Yeah, G-G's. I know. Wow. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm only on my third. Really? But you'll have to. Uh, yeah, you'll have to. Uh, thanks. Third Steph. tall glass. Yeah, yeah. I need to catch one. up with you, man. Yeah, you do. Um, and, uh, let's see. Uh, item ten, Glenn, <laughs> from uh, I guess not down under, but uh, from New Zealand. He was a, he's a Kiwi. Maybe he can kind of uh, inform us why they don't want to be called uh, down from down under. But anyway. 
um, he sent in some audio feedback. So uh, let's take a listen. Here you go, Glenn. Hello, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Captain Dana, and Captain Nick. It's Glenn here from New Zealand with some feedback. I felt I've been slandered. Uh, I'm going to see, going to go and talk to my lawyers. Uh, the remark from the feedback from Ben uh, and then Captain Jeff at the end said, oh, I hope we get some more de- listeners from down under. And Captain Nick said, uh, I hope you're not like, said, oh, Glenn. I was like, that's, that's terrible. I should go and complain to HR about that. That's, that's, I'm looking for legal advice and I've been slandered. So, uh, but my country will get its revenge. We are playing All Blacks versus England in the Rugby World Cup. We will, uh, my honour will be, uh, should be fulfilled by a, an aesthetic win on, on the rugby field. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Of course, I don't really mind with all those. It's fun. Nice to be mentioned on the podcast. Um, also, tame, Plain Tales, an interesting fact about Plain Tales. The guy, the bomb, the Dan Busters raids, the no one can really un- two things they really can understand two interesting facts i say why they didn't go back and bomb the dams again but i guess it's because they did put up a lot of anti-aircraft guns around the dams to stop them opening and the other interesting fact is that so many workers were taken away f- so many workers were used to rebuild the dams that they had to take workers away from the atlantic wall so that actually helped the allies when it comes to doing the invasion, because the war was obviously not completed. I mean, obviously Normandy was, there was just not really much of a war there at all, the Normandy barrier. So, so it could have made quite a difference. Had those workers not been rebuilding the dams, they would have been working on the Atlantic Wall. But you know, that's one of those big what-ifs. But anyway, uh, fun enjoying the podcast as always. Uh, and looking forward to episode 400. I'm sure you'll do something quite special there. Anyway, um, Talons, Douglas, Glenn out. Thanks, Gladden. Talons to you. And no, we're not going to do anything really uh, special for 400. So, um, sorry. I talked about that on the last episode. We're going to just save all of our... We, we just decided we're just going to skip that episode altogether? Well, right? I think we're still going to do a 400 episode. Oh, okay. But, uh, you know. My bad. I'd still need to be here. That is what you're saying. Well, you don't need to be if you want to do oh. something else, stuff. You know, if it's getting old for you, whatever. I'm kidding. I know. Totally kidding. <laughs> I know. Um, I love. I love the way that he uh, ribbed me about the All Blacks yeah. uh, playing England. Of course, he wasn't to know that his no <laughs> his feedback when he set this in. Be, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, the All Blacks got their faces thoroughly rubbed in the mud. So, uh, yeah, bad luck, Glenn, mate. And I feel sorry for you, not. <laughs> Always good to hear from Glenn. Yeah. Absolutely. We need- Lovely mm-hmm. band. Yeah. Lovely band. All right. All righty. Let's move on to this uh, piece of feedback from Steve. Yeah, Steve Hurst. Uh, hi, APG crew. A quick question about takeoff procedure, if I may. I fly a lot as a passenger and as an av geek, I pay more attention than most to what is going on. And so I pick up on the out of the usual. I just got off a flight from Taipei, Taiwan to San Francisco. And I noticed that the takeoff out of Taipei was 
slightly unusual in as much as normally at takeoff, you feel the brakes release and the aircraft starts to gently roll forward as the engines increase to intermediate power and then stabilize. And then we go to full takeoff power and feel the acceleration build. For this particular takeoff, I heard the engines rev up to the intermediate power, but the pilot held on the brakes and not until it seemed like the engines were stabilized, they then released the brakes and the aircraft leapt forward and then the takeoff power went in. In my experience, this is more unusual. Could you explain the circumstances when it might be necessary to do this? By the way, in case it is relevant, this was a 777-300ER. The runways are both long at Taipei at 11,000 feet and 12,000 feet. And he says, I'm not sure which one we took off from. So I doubt that runway length was an issue unless we were particularly heavily loaded. Thanks in advance for your comments as always. Steve Hurst. Who wants to jump on that one? And Steve, my, my thought on this, and I don't know what the procedure is on the 777 particular, but I do know on our aircraft that if you have engine, if you have to turn the engine in the ice for uh, temperature and dew point that's close, you know, like if, uh, you know, below 10 degrees and a three degree uh, split or less on a dew point temp, um, then we would have to go ahead and turn the engine in the ice, which requires for us to do a static takeoff. So it might be a clear in a million light winds, but if the temperature is such that that could possibly be one of the possibilities because they had to go ahead and uh, bring the engines up, make sure they're stabilized before they release the brakes as we have to on our airplane. I don't know for Boeing in particular, though. Yeah. That was one of my thoughts. I think so. Um, yeah. As, as Dana mentions, we can talk specifically about our airplane and our company's policy regarding when we do uh, are allowed to do rolling takeoffs, static takeoffs, and standing takeoffs. And uh, what he is um, referring to is what we would term a standing takeoff. Um, so there are basically two times when we, as Dana mentioned, the first one, uh, the icing conditions um, we're not allowed to do a rolling takeoff. And the other condition is, um, um, oh no, all of a sudden it just left me. Um, oh, low, visi well, low visibility, low visibility, and low yeah. visibility. Yeah. We can do, we don't have to do a standing takeoff, like keep the brakes on until the engine stabilized, but we, uh, have to start the takeoff roll from a stop and then, uh, you know, do our takeoff roll. So it's a little bit, you know, they're very similar, but they're not quite the same thing where you're not going to feel the brakes being held and the engines really spooling up and kind of feeling that lurch forward that you would with a standing takeoff. So, uh, you know, Jeff, and, and I have to correct myself because 10 degrees is airborne. It's six degrees or less. So I want to make sure we're at hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. And that's just, yeah, for I'm, our I'm particular just going to say this is Taipei. They're taking off mm -hmm. from in the coldest month of the year, which is January. Uh, the average temperatures only get to 55 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Yeah, so, so that's is probably not exactly not, yeah. temperatures where you're likely to need uh, any icing. For the rest of the year, it's hot and sticky. Yeah. So I I, uh, I would probably be inclined to think that uh, there was and perhaps a new pilot who wasn't quite used to the, um, the run-up procedure on the engines and just got it a bit wrong. Or um, they had a significant crosswind on the 330s, certainly. At times, uh, we wanted to get the engines spooled up a bit more when we released the brakes so that there was less likely uh, of a surge when we uh, got the thing going. Uh, in fact, the FADEX were eventually modified and that didn't become a problem anymore. But that, but that would be more likely to my theory. But either the guys just didn't 
do it the way they wanted to do it, or um, there was a bit of a crosswind, perhaps. But we need Miami Rick really to uh, answer <laughs> this one. I think mm-hmm. it was they wanted to impress all the people on the ground and just you know run up the power as much as they could and then release the brakes and do one of those. Perhaps his girlfriend was watching. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> good. Good possibility. Do a nice uh, <laughs> short field takeoff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Uh, so that's what we got, Steve. Um, anybody else have any ideas out there? You know, let us know. And we might talk about it on the show. <laughs> um, 12, Texas and Lashock. Uh, the history of podcasts or something like that. Uh, greetings, Captain Jeff and APG crew. Thanks for reading my feedback. I'm glad you at least got the pun uh, when he was talking about, you know, saying, you know, the and Lashock. Well, I was and- impressed because I didn't get it. Well, I had to look up Anne Lashock, you know, which I admitted. Um, but uh, I, I once I knew that Anne Lashock were the Rangers in Babylon 5, and then he said Texas. So I'm thinking Texas Rangers. And yeah, so I oh, it took me a job. while to figure bit it out. Of, anyway. Yeah, but detective work. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not how I read it, though. So I'm not going to say it on this show. No. Okay, thank you. I was uh, hoping to find some actual uh, B5 fans. Uh, that must be the lingo. Babylon 5. Since I feel that that show didn't uh, get anywhere near as or doesn't get anywhere near as much love as it deserves and felt I had at least a fair chance here since several years ago, I listened to a number of Father Roderick's podcasts. That's the uh, podcasting network I was affiliated with when I started podcasting, such as the Secrets of Babylon 5, the Secrets of Pan Am, where I heard Captain Jeff for the first time. Uh, You seemed there was a there was a television show here in the U.S. that. I think made it one season. <laughs> it should have even gotten that far. Maybe two seasons. I don't know. Anyway, um, you seemed not that impressed with the show, and I fully understand why, but I felt there was potential there. If the producers could get their act together, I was hoping they at least get to the second season, which would have gone into 1964, which would have given them the perfect opportunity to re- reenact one of the iconic moments in American history. The arrival in New York of the Beatles aboard the Pan Am 707 Clipper Defiance. C'est la vie, I suppose. Speaking of watching things, I recently stumbled across a video uh, about a guy about to leave the MD-80, I think for American Airlines, based on a brief exterior shot talking about a number of the weird things found in the Mad Dog cockpit, the kind of things you frequently discuss, make fun of on your show. But the thing that really blew my mind, and which I didn't think I've ever heard mention of here, well... If you listen to some of the other shows we've done, we've talked about this many times, actually, was the compass, which you look at in a mirror. Is that for real? Does the 90 do that, too? Yes. And yes. And it's the the basically the backup. It, it would be an emergency procedure if we were actually using the mirror to look at that compass that is uh, behind the first officer's, um, I guess, right shoulder. Um, yeah, it's true. And uh, it's... Uh, it's a weird design for sure, but we don't routinely look at that. That's just there for emergencies. Um, and the, uh, the video that re- you're referring to, um, yeah, it's been out there for quite some time. And in fact, so, so much so, I think we talked about, um, I don't know, a few months back, that captain many years later now, um, going back to the museum that American has where they have a, a cockpit, um, mock-up or actually as part of the real cockpit and they fixed it all up and and uh, used his 
Um, I don't know if he re-recorded it or if he that they used the, his voice from the original video. But if you go to that American Airlines Museum and you look at the Mad Dog there and push the buttons, that that's that guy's voice. I can't remember his name right offhand, uh, but it's called Cockpit Chronicles or something like that. So, yep, been around for quite some time, and a lot of people have uh, have mentioned it uh, in feedback. So, um, great. It was Quick a comment. Yeah. Um, Secrets of Babylon 5, nah, you want to watch Firefly, assuming you're a sci-fi fan and a fan of uh, short series that should never have been cancelled, then uh, please Firefly, uh, or the movie Serenity, of course, mm-hmm. which came on afterwards, uh, Joss Whedon, brilliant man. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was something else I was going to say, but, oh yeah, um, this is complete aside, my apologies for sp- wasting time, but you know, I was talking about the Dam Busters, and he's talking about compasses. You know, when the Dam Busters uh, dropped their weapon, they had to swap out their compass deviation cards because once that huge mass of metal had left the aircraft, their compasses would have misread. They were calibrated so correctly. Absolutely. So wow. they had to take out uh, the compass deviation card they have in and replace it for one with an aircraft that wasn't carrying the mine <laughs> so that they could fly home accurately. Wow. Because <laughs> they really were using those wet compasses. Yeah, they were right absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah but they were probably anyway, positioned in front of them for, yeah. Not in, not behind them not with behind a mirror them. that you have to look at. Yeah, yeah. Probably not. Probably, probably not. not. And they had a navigator as well, which is a very useful man to have at times. If they're any good. Indeed. Yes. If, if they know where they're going. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, very good. Um, let's see. A bit of a track jump, but here's a question I've been wondering about. It goes all the way back to when Captain Jeff appeared on George Nolly's podcast. Uh, ready for Ooh, takeoff. Let's go back a bit. Yeah. What was that, 10 years ago? No, not that far long ago. Oh, okay. Uh, you said uh, then, I don't think it was that long ago. Anyway, um, <laughs> you said that when you went to the uh, C-141 to get experience with large multi-engine aircraft in preparation for your airline career, uh, what I wanted to know is why the 141 specifically, as opposed to the other large multi-engine aircraft in the Air Force inventory, such as this the KC-135 or... Uh, it's uh, the other fine Lockheed products like the C-130 or C-5. Anyway, thank you again, Clear Skies, everyone. This is Texas and LaShock signing off. Okay, so I just made some brief notes here. Uh, first of all, in assignment, when you're given an assignment out of pilot training, uh, if uh, if the aircraft is available and you are, um, you know, you're you're high enough up in the pecking order, you can get whatever you want if, as long as it's available and Every class is a little bit different. They may have slots open for um, a couple of 141 pilots and a handful of 130 pilots and a handful of F-15. You get the idea. And uh, I believe at the time, I, I could be wrong about this, it's been quite some time uh, since I was uh, at undergraduate pilot training assignment night, but I don't believe that the C-5 was one of those airplanes that they were even given uh, giving to uh, pilots straight out of undergraduate pilot training. Um, they kind of held that back for the people that were maybe first assignment instructors who uh, wanted to fly heavies after they got out of uh, their instructor uh, tour and uh, that sort of thing. And there, you know, not as many airplanes. Uh, the 141s were much more numerous. Uh, the C5 was also um, a, the nickname is uh, Fred, which is um, uh, effing ridiculous economic disaster. That's one uh, definition of what Fred means. Uh, it was a very expensive airplane. It was a Class A or Class One resource. I forget what the term is, 
but it was so expensive that everywhere it went, it was guarded by armed uh, soldiers. It was in a restricted area. I mean, you cross the red line in the restricted area, they, they shoot first and ask questions later. And it was just one of those resources that they didn't want to send everywhere in the world because it was a big, you know, it was a, a huge risk. And so the places that I wanted to fly, um, I wanted to go everywhere around the world. And uh, the 141 went there. And it was strategic airlift. The uh, 130 uh, was more of a tactical airlift kind of airplane. And uh, so what the kind of job that I was doing was basically airline flying in the, in the military. We'd go out on a trip and be gone for, they were a little bit longer trips, maybe five to seven days. We had one trip that was a, like a 16-day trip, a double Diego. Uh, went uh, twice to uh, the Indian Atoll, um, Diego Garcia. Navy has a facility out there. Anyway. Um, so it was, uh, we never deployed. You were always, you always started the trip at base, which for me was Travis air force base in Northern California. And when I finished the trip, I was back at home at my base, never had to go on a three month, six month, one year, uh, deployment. So, uh, that was the advantage of the 141 over an airplane such as the C-130. And then of course the KC-135, that was the strategic air command sack. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, and who'd want to be a KC-135 pilot where all those fighter pilots are sucking your gas? There you go. So, of course, <laughs> at least... Uh, you, and if you're a KC-135 pilot, you can send your angry comments yeah, but to they didn't have pilot. They didn't have to suck your gas, right? <laughs> Whatever that means. Um, but uh, so strategic, strategic Air know. Command, especially back in the day, in, you know, when the Cold War was still going on. Yeah, I'm old. And Captain Nick is as well. You know, he has great stories of intercepting Russian bombers and and all kinds of you know things that happened in the Cold War. Uh, we had um, strategic air command crews, both bombers and tankers, on alert uh, all the time. And so, if you were assigned that airplane, so it wasn't so much the airplane. I think the airplane's fine. It's the mission of the airplane that was horrible, and nobody wanted to do, not not many wanted to do willingly. And, uh, so, you know, you'd have to be on alert for, I don't know how long the alert periods were, but it was a, it was a tough job. And, uh, and same thing with the bombers. So, you know, I didn't even consider, uh, the 135. And I did kind of consider a little bit the KC-10 because its mission, its role was a little bit different than the KC-135. They have kind of, they kind of did the 135 kind of mission, but they also did, uh, kind of some of the military airlift command stuff as well, because the airplane could haul a bunch of stuff as well as a lot of gas. So anyway, um, but the KC-10 was very difficult to get to out of pilot training as well. So, and I don't even think that we had one available to our class when it was time for our assignments. So I know I, I didn't mean to make that so long, but that's the reason why I chose the 141. It was just the best airplane for me to do the things I wanted to do. Okay. Um, anything else to add to that? Anybody? Mm -mm. Only if you care to make the feedback or the response even longer. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Was was Jeff talking? Yeah. That's HR. That's HR. For Man, you. I must. No, no. I actually did not mean that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, what? you did. I must have done like, something to upset stuff. We were all thinking the same. Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. I have to. Work on assuming you have beer, I'll have please. If you need a beer, that one. And I'm. Yeah. I guess I'll just have to go back to uh, <laughs> HR classes on how to. <laughs> 
communicate more. Crew resource management. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, no, Micah was just asking the difference between tactical and strategic airlift for those who are not oh, familiar with those terms. Yeah, basically strategic is supposed to be, um, you know, we would haul the stuff from um, one theater or to a general theater of operations and then offload the stuff and then they put the uh, the stuff that we were hauling on a, a, the C-130, which was tactical airlift, which they would be the ones that went into the you know, closer into where all the action was occurring in a, in a war or battle situation. Although I do remember having a conversation flying down from uh, a certain air force base in, uh, on the East coast, heading down to Grenada when uh, that whole thing was going on in the eighties, I think 1983, when there was a coup attempt uh, uh, with the government there and backed by the Cubans. And there was some Russian, influence and and activity there as well and we were going down there uh to uh deliver troops and also to del- to deliver equipment um fighting equipment tanks and well i don't know tanks but uh fighting vehicles and that kind of thing and uh so on the way down there it was very quiet it's in the middle of the night we're using t- a tactical call sign we just gotten our briefing about what we might encounter and i looked over to the um, aircraft commander and said aren't we supposed to be strategic airlift? <laughs> because this is not a, what, what our mission was during that Grenada thing was not, ta- it was not strategic. It was tactical. So um, I was a little confused at the time, but. Uh, so one gets shot at and the other doesn't. Is that what you're saying? That's basically, yeah, that's the, probably the, <laughs> yeah. the bottom Got line. It. And we were get we were briefed cool. on the fact that we were possibly going to get shot at. And I'm thinking, huh, I, I not, wasn't not really, I wasn't really was signing doing. up for that, I didn't think, but yeah, apparently I was. Okay. Uh, sorry, I spent so much time on that. Uh, John uh, 13, not the Bible verse, but uh, item number 13 in the feedback, John. Um, listening to episode 396 at the moment, a tidbit on the pickle forks. It's my understanding that the aircraft having the issues were assembled in China. Make of that what you will, but I think that that speaks to the potential issues uh, when what happens when you outsource parts manufacturing. I'll look for a source of where I read that and send a follow-up. And I'm not sure if we got a follow-up on that or not from John, but uh, interesting angle on the the pickle spork. <laughs> I had heard that as well. Oh, I haven't seen it definitively, but okay. I heard that, uh, yeah, interesting. Chinese manufacturers should aircraft for the ones with the problems. Oh, boy. <laughs> By the way, uh, John 13 is all about washing uh, feet, isn't it? I think that's... Uh, it could did be. Did you Google that, Nick? <laughs> he must have. I'm sure he did. Yes, it is. I got nothing else he's to really do. a godly person. <laughs> I got nothing else to do with this program. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, this is from Brian in Tulsa. Uh, just listened to my feedback on episode 396, and since you all enjoy the ambiance of the ice machines at my work so much, <laughs> I, I figured I'd spare you this, uh, the strain this time. And, oh, thank the yeah. Lord, my, my poor ears. <laughs> and I really, I actually did, uh, for the, the audio podcast, I actually did try to do some noise reduction to reduce the, and I just, I, I couldn't do a whole lot of noise reduction on it without making his voice sound like it was a robot. So I, so I just left most of that ice machine cleaning noise in there anyway um so i i 
figured I'd spare you the strain this time and send in some written feedback. This way, Jeff can soothe us all with that smooth voice of his. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the 21st of October, and as of today, Dr. Steph and I have the same aircraft ratings, I think. I, too, am now a commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. That's right. I passed yeah, my multi-engine. Yeah, you haven't got a flight plane rating. Right yeah, yeah, single yeah, engine scene, you're missing Yeah, that, come I on. <laughs> You'll never catch up with Dr. Steph. Anyway, congratulations. <laughs> no, very excited for you, Brian. Yeah, we're still Excellent upset job. about the ice machine. Um, Just Jeff. Well, Nick, actually. He's the one that uh, made fun <laughs> of you. Nick. Yeah. Um, I'm, really, I'm really PO'd. Yeah, I can tell. Um, I'll spare you all the details, but after three reschedules and about a month of being in that constant pre-checkride state of stress, it feels so good to have it all done. I'll miss flying our Piper Seminole as it's my favorite aircraft I've flown out of three models, but it's relatively inexpensive to not inexpensive, expensive to rent and fly on my flight student budget. Looking forward. Uh, it's time to start CFI training. I've already studied for and passed my fundamentals of instruction written exam, and now I'm studying up for the CFI airplane written exam. Thanks again for putting together a great show. Talk to you all soon. Brian from Tulsa. So again, congratulations, Brian. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it is a really good job. I've never flown a Seminole. What's it like? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I haven't flown one either. We have a Seminole. (laughs) Seminole is a beautiful aircraft. Piper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Piper Seneca's, uh, yeah, the one that Seneca, we had. Piper Seminole is a, a T-tail, yep, and exactly. uh, it is a uh, counter-rotating prop. So, in other words, you you don't have a critical engine um, on it. So, if you lose an engine, they're they're rotating towards each other. So, mm-hmm. it really takes takes the threat of that uh, uh, critical engine out of the picture. It's a, a really nice flying airplane. Great training airplane for multi-engine. So, great training sure. platform. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like I've got to start working on my CFI then if I'm going to stay ahead of oh, Brian See? or my. Oh, boy. Here we really go. start building some hours and get my ATP. I don't know. Something. Hey, you can come train me any day. So. <laughs> Steph, hey, Brian, not only is she going to be a CFI, she'll be double IMEI and IGI. Yeah. So, and, Before yeah. you know, she's going to be the uh, uh, the administrator of the FAA because yeah, she's yeah, a very competitive I mean, I did want to give away my I, I know goals, goals, but. <laughs> and she's going to be an II. What's this here then? Huh? Oh, it, sorry. <laughs> I think that went all over English all of our... English policeman's joke. Aye, aye. What's this here then? Ah. After a doctor, it's quite a good joke, okay. I thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. good one, Nick. Um, <laughs> Move on. All right. Well, we have some more feedback here, but guess what? It is now... We're right at the three-hour point. No! Yeah. No way. And, yeah... We are going to move the uh, items left. We almost got all of them. Uh, Brian from Katie, we're we're, going to address yours on the next show. Michael, what's the deal with the closed window shades? That'll be a good discussion, I think. Mm. Uh, Ham Radio Jim um, uh, asks us a question about lithium-ion batteries uh, for those mobility scooters. 100 watt-hours is the answer. Okay. No, it's 42. 42 is the no, answer for everything. Right? <laughs> That's the answer. Life, the universe, and everything. And it's printed on the zip uh, of your jeans. Good Lord. Hmm. Uh, how do you know about her zip on her jeans? Hmm. It's on all the, well, it used to be, uh, on all the Levi zips that had the oh. number 42 on it. Might not be the right time to let Nick know I'm not wearing jeans. But anyway. 
Probably not. What happens <laughs> beneath, beneath your shirt, we'll never know about. <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, we have all that and more. And uh, if you want to send feedback to our show, you can head over to the website, airlinepilotguy.com. You can put that website on your phone as well. You can appify it. And uh, those directions for appifying your uh, our website are on are in each show's show notes. So check that out. Um, Is that a word, or you just made that? Appify. I think I. You know, I've actually heard it before. Steph used it, but it's such a good word that uh, I used it. Yeah, you, I thought you were the one that came up with it, didn't you? Maybe. Because I was saying, so I, I was trying to come up with a word to explain the the, the process uh, yeah, of making like a, something. I would say, actually. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll give you. No, credit. it sounds like something I would say. I'll, yeah. I'll take credit. And uh, lots of good stuff on that website. So check it out. And uh, we are also on the social meds. We are. You can head over to twitter.com. Use the handle at APG Crew. Find us there. Um, send us tweets whatever you'd like head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy uh hang out with the community there all of us are there and we really hope to see you on the social meds we do it's true and we uh are on slack and uh i'm wondering if hillel's ready for this hillel hillel are you there today he's given the candy to the trick-or-treaters leave him alone okay mind if i use your razor jeff Okay. Anyway, come seems on. personal. Yeah, it does. Uh, rather, Depends what you're gonna shave, Rather you not, actually. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. So uh, tell us about Slack, Hillel. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Now, get out of here. I wouldn't go in there for a while, Captain. Thank you. Good advice. And with that, wishing everyone out there a wonderful weekend. And uh, we'll see you again next week, uh, the next episode of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. And a big round of applause. And thank you to our awesome producer, Liz Piper. In hey, time. well done, Liz. Mm-hmm. Always great house. We love her. And we love all of you out there listening to our show. We do appreciate you downloading, reviewing, and all that stuff. So until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Happy Halloween. yabba dabba do. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG 
I open doors for little old ladies. I help them to their seats. Airline, not a guy. I fly. I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I 